The Sports Gambling Podcast Network and the Inside Vegas Podcast are brought to you by MyBookie. MyBookie.ag is the official online sportsbook of the Inside Vegas Podcast and the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. Are you sick and tired of getting the runaround when you ask for a payout? Join MyBookie today and as always, enter, pro- co- enter promo code SGP100 for a 100% deposit bonus today for the upcoming NFL and NCAA season. We are also brought to you by Oddshark. Get free picks from the supercomputer and expert writing staff as well as data-driven editorial content that you cannot and will not find anywhere else. Finally, we are brought to you by BetQL. BetQL is the only mobile app that gives you the best chance to beat Vegas, and now NFL lines are available on the app. Go to betql.co to download the only app you need to make smarter bets today. Today is Monday, August 13th, and welcome into a special edition of the Inside Vegas podcast where we will be wrapping up the Vegas Bookie Club series with a good friend of the podcast. I'm sure you've seen him if you are anywhere involved in social media and gambling Twitter and everything and anything like that, as well as the Deep Dive podcast with Andy and the White Whale. Myself and the White Whale are going to be talking about the Football Outsiders Almanac to wrap up the Vegas Bookie Club series. Um, and w- the way that we did this format was a little bit different. Um, the, the Warren Sharp one, uh, I didn't love how that actually ended up coming out because it was a little bit, there was too much to digest. So the way that uh, myself and Whale did it, we used the pregame show portion of that uh, of the Almanac and we kind of tied that into some of our best bets uh, and first looks into the 2018 NFL handicapping season, be that uh, Whale specialty, which is uh, handicapping situationally, scheduling um, and stuff like that. Um, or my kind of uh, big picture look at, in buying and selling things long term. And uh, this is probably, um, I love the Phil Steele one, the Warren Sharp one. Uh, I didn't love how that one ended up just from a format wise. That one was a little bit difficult. And this one would have been um, a little bit closer to the Warren Sharp one if we didn't do it this way. So I absolutely love how this episode turned out. Um, as always, if you guys, um, if you have any kind of guides or anything that comes out during um, up leading up to your handicapping for the NFL and college series that you'd like us to do a review on, please let us know. Um, but this is going to wrap up probably season one of the Vegas Bookie Club series. This is the Football Outsiders Almanac with the White Whale. And now joining me on the Inside Vegas podcast. I like that you use the term friend of the podcast on your show, so I'm going to use it on mine. <laughs> and that is the White Whale, frequent, frequent guest of the Inside Vegas podcast and the Sports Gaming Podcast Network and program shows. How is it in sunny California, my friend? How was your weekend? Oh, it's incredible, man! Football so close, I can taste it. Uh, I had a great, uh, I had a great weekend traveling. Actually, visited some family on the East Coast, but it gave me the chance to do a heck of a lot of reading and research and preparing myself for the NFL season. So, super happy to be on to talk about uh, maybe my favorite football reference of them all. Yeah, and again, this is the Football Outsiders Almanac, and if anyone is not familiar, this is probably the most, not probably, I mean, Warren Sharps is in-depth, but this one is next level, and for anyone that's not familiar with what the Football Outsiders um, kind of did and does, um, I don't want to say flip the game or revolutionize the game, um, but they came up with this term that you're going to hear that's kind of the square sabermetric stat, and that's DVOA, um, and that's defensive adjusted value over average. Um, you're a lot more articulate at these things than I am, so let's just touch on what DVOA is because it's kind of their their pillar for what they've set out to accomplish in the analytics community. 
Yeah, so Football Outsiders has been doing this for a long time, longer than I've been doing this. Uh, so, you know, it, it's gone through a number of iterations, but effectively what they're trying to do is come up with an efficiency metric at a team level uh, for every offense, for every defense, for every passing offense, rushing offense, uh, special teams unit. You know, they break it down in granularity. Uh, and they're trying to come up with this efficiency metric that captures not just how well a team did, um, but how important it was at that time for the situation, also relative to how strong their opponent was. So this is like they've gone next level in trying to come up with like the least noisy, most informative, most predictive stats that you can can come up with related to football. And at least for me, uh, their DVOA week in, week out is kind of the nucleus and starting point for all the analytical modeling I do to try to uh, project a given outcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of it is just that I have confidence that like, hey, they have taken some of the noise out of this. Uh, and, you know, just because a team may play the worst defense in the league and have a great offensive uh, output doesn't necessarily mean it's a great offense. And you kind of get those numbers kind of baked in directly, which I think is hugely important if you're going to, you know, kind of trust the data, so to speak, if, if you're doing analytical modeling of, of for, for handicapping, especially. Right. And I mean, the thought process behind DVOA is, again, you touched on the word importance and kind of what situationally things mean. And for example, you know, the undisputed king of garbage time, at least, you know, before, before this last season was Blake Bortles. So they, you know, fantasy yeah. points and DFS players and all that stuff, prop projections, they all count the same, right? Well, Football Outsiders created this metric to weigh that and say, no, you know, just because Blake Bortles is throwing for 400 yards a game when 250 of it was in the fourth quarter down by 35, he shouldn't be um, compensated, but he, his metric should be different than Tom Brady who threw for 250 in a 17 to 16, uh, win and had, you know, three, fourth and 10 completions, you know, and stuff like that. And that's, that's what, a great, 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 great summary. That's what DVOA was kind of put in place to do. Um, and some people swear by it, <clears throat> excuse me again. I know you say you started, uh, you know, you start your model with that and some people, Maybe they don't have the time to kind of look into it because when you just take it at first glance, it's a tool to me and you can't just barely you know, only take it. You have to incorporate it. And again, that's why I have so much kind of respect for the modeling and the things that you do out there um, because you incorporate it. So again, this is the Vegas Bookie Club's edition of the Football Outsiders Almanac. So let's get started with the pregame show. And this is kind of their preface, their quote unquote forward, where they just kind of throw out some uh, you know, talking points, I guess is the wrong word, but Basically, they're, they're kind of most important things to start the year on. Um, so let's just touch on this. Uh, the first one, you run the ball when you, when you win, not win when you run. Now, this is something that has also been kind of uh, a talking point for one of our friends, Suma, in the NFL industry. Um, he kind of believes that the running game in the NFL is pointless. It's, it's a kind of misused uh, thing at this point, and the game has changed, and it's not needed. Um, so I'm just going to read this initial paragraph, and then you can give me your opinion on it. <laughs> sure. If we could only share one piece of anti-conventional wisdom with you before you read the rest of our book, this would be it. The first article ever written for Football Outsider was devoted to debunking the myth of establishing the run. There is no correlation whatsoever between giving your running backs a lot of carries early in the game and winning the game. Just running the ball is not going to help a team score. It has to run successfully. Now, so again, 
is it outdated? Is it not? Running the ball is something that I would say the new generation of NFL fans, the younger ones, absolutely hate. They want to see a 60 to 50 game. They want to see these highly paid quarterbacks go off and do their thing. And these diva wide receivers do everything while the old school guys are going to tell you that when you control the clock, you play defense, uh, you win. Um, it's kind of been, I think that it's been shown progress both sides that I don't know if I necessarily agree with that you need to abandon a running game. However, I think it's been shown that you do not need one. Where do you kind of fall on the spectrum of what they just said? Okay. So I can, I think that uh, what you read and again, this, that was kind of like the nugget of, or it's like the thesis, right? The jumping off point for all this. And really like you, it's way more complicated than that as everything is. Right. And you know, of course the running game, you know, it's not that it doesn't matter whatsoever. Uh, it matters a lot on second and short. Right. If you can convert your second and short and you can sustain drives, then, uh, you know, the running game is an extremely uh, effective tool in those situations. It's also super important when you're trying to put away a game, when you're trying to sock away a lead. How how much uh, how much do the uh, uh, Atlanta Falcons not regret being able to uh, put away a a lead about uh, a year and a half ago? You know, like if, if they had had a more uh, successful running approach in that situation, then maybe they don't cough up that lead to the Patriots. And that Marshawn, was something that the Marshawn Falcons Lynch did. Marshawn Lynch in Seattle, too. Marshawn Lynch in Seattle, sure. There are very specific situations where the running game matters a lot. Um, but overall, the idea that you absolutely have to have an elite running back, the idea that you should allocate cap space uh, or draft, high, you know, high value draft assets towards the running game is laughable on both sides of the ball. You don't need a defense that's especially good at stopping the run. You don't need an offense that's especially good at, quote-unquote, establishing the run. Uh, The passing game is substantially more important to winning football. And, you know, and so the idea that, like, a guy like Dave Gettleman from the Giants used a second overall pick on a running back is, like, heresy. Like, he violated one of the commandments of kind of the new age of football thinking. And, um, you know, when he could have potentially gotten, you know, a a franchise quarterback to replace the aging Eli Manning, he instead used that draft capital to draft a running back is, like, unforgivable. Um, So that's kind of the... Is that your opinion or is that just their... um, I know that that is their opinion, but do you also uh, agree with that in that situation? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. I, I don't, you know, Saquon Barkley could be the next iteration of Adrian Peterson and it wouldn't, wouldn't matter. It wouldn't change my opinion on this. Um, you know, they've, really? if, that's very interesting. Cause what's, cause what happens now in New York, right? They, I they, agree they with bounce, that situation and that Saquon Barkley yeah. is not going to have a uh, offensive line. The thought process that I would argue is that that type of talent doesn't come along in the draft, you know, case in point being Ezekiel Elliott. Now, I know that Ezekiel Elliott has the best offensive line in football, so it's a little bit different. But the point is, you know, the other argument to that is that if you don't take that talent in this year's draft, you may never have that type of talent. Again, a la Adrian Peterson, uh, Ezekiel Elliott. Now, I know the other case in point is that, you know, uh, Alfred Morris averaged like five yards a carry behind that offensive line. I get that. I understand that. <laughs> the other one that I, sure. would, the other, I would bring up. Uh, is the Patriots and Sony Michelle using that? Because if anyone would kind of agree with you, I would think it would be Bill Belichick. Um, you know, no, you know, the system over the players. So it, it's a little bit different. Um, again, there's arguments to be made both sides. I just I think that where I fall on this is when it's a generational talent. 
I think that you can break that rule. And there was like a two to three year period where there was no running backs taken in the first round. And again, the last two years that has been, it's coming back, right? Because um, there seems to be, you know, maybe that's a product of there's, there's, you know, Fournette, et cetera. There's just these generational talents. And in the case of Fournette, I mean, you saw the difference between Yeldon and Ivory to Fournette. Um, so I think that the rule can be broken. Um, it just, I think you have to feel really good about that particular player. When I say really good, I mean, you should have that player, you know, you know, the end of his second contract should still be on your team barring injury. Um, is that, do you kind of think that there is ever a chance to break that or when was the, when would be the lowest, uh, draft capital you would spend on a quote unquote elite running back like a Saquon Barkley? Well, so a lot of it depends also on like your portfolio, what you have to pick that year, the rest of your roster and things like that. Uh, I, in particular, the Saquon Barkley pick for the Giants for me was an egregious mistake. And it again, he can go on and become a Hall of Fame running, running back. He can replicate Adrian Peterson's career. He can get an MVP award, single-handedly carry the Giants to the playoffs one year. That all, None of that would change my mind because the passing game is so much more important and you have an aging Eli Manning who absolutely has to be replaced. And you have the second pick in the NFL draft the uh, um, Baker Mayfield goes first. So potentially, you know, Sam Darnold may be the best, you know, uh, quarterback on your board. You can in one moment set yourself up for potentially a generation of effective passing if you choose a quarterback in that situation. But instead you pick a running back and the difference between what Barkley can give you and what you could get from a slew of other running backs later on in the draft, or even just uh, you know a, a running back by committee, what you're picking off the free agency heap, as the Patriots have kind of shown, and the fact that you brought you brought up Sonny Michelle and what Bill Belichick did, that was mind blowing. I don't know what is going on. I, my opinion of Belichick, the GM, continues to go down. I don't know. Preach, I don't preach. Know, I I don't know what he was thinking drafting a running back. If I like, I thought it was. Uh, like a mistake or an error or they had a trade <laughs> lined up. I was like, this can't be really happening, but it sure enough, it did. And sure enough, he's already hurt because the guy is, you know, is, is prone to injuries. So, uh, you know, that, that was a whole nother Oprah, I guess. But, but yeah, taking Barkley in that pick, even if he goes on to have a hall of fame career, he is not going to win you a super bowl. You need a absolutely top tier passing game to win a super bowl in the NFL and, or just an otherworldly, uh, offensive approach, as we saw what the Eagles did last year. You know, you need to be at the very cutting edge of uh, of the game of football, uh, and in in the passing game especially, in order to uh, to win a championship. And you know, you had your chance to replace Eli Manning. Presumably, you're going to be better this year. You're not going to be picking in the bo- you know, in the top five of the draft to get a quarterback next year, uh, and maybe not for a couple years. And this. You know the opportunity cost of passing on a quarterback could be pretty, uh, could be pretty brutal for the Giants fans to bear, especially if Darnold goes on to uh, elevate the Jets to be the uh, the premier team in New York metropolitan area. That'll be fascinating. I'm so glad that we disagree on this because I think <laughs> I think the pregame show and the football stars on Mac, like you touched on off air, I think it's one of the best things they do because there's so many good jumping off points. So let me make the other case the other way again. That is, yeah. So. You can do it with a running game, in particular the the kind of hybrid running backs. I think that Le'Veon Bell can carry a team to a Super Bowl. I think David Johnson can carry a team to a Super Bowl. I think Todd Gurley can carry a team to a Super Bowl. However, you know my opinion on Jared Goff. You know my opinion on you know whoever Sam Bradford's call it in Arizona. I think that 
they can put you over the top, maybe more than they can carry you. I shouldn't have said that. I should say that I think they can put you over the top. And to me, you have to know where people are going to go in the draft, right? They're not going, you know, these elite talents, you can, you can say there and say that they shouldn't be taken in the first round. But if that's your guy, and the other side of this is you can't blindly say, I think that they should take a quarterback. That franchise has to be okay with that particular quarterback. I personally was was not high on any of the quarterbacks coming out in this draft. I would not have staked my franchise on either Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, and on down the line, Josh Allen. So to me, I don't think you can force a quarterback if you're not comfortable putting your franchise's shoulders on, you know, putting your franchise on their shoulders because it will set you back as the Browns have have shown us time and time again. The Jets have shown us it will set you back four to five years because you have to give these guys three years to develop. And if you're not in a win now, quote unquote, um, I think that that's okay to find out. But to me, a, a first round running back bust doesn't kill you the way a first round quarterback bust does. So that's the other side of it to me is you can't just break it down by position. You have to say, this is my quarterback. Now, would I take an elite quarterback, you know, prospect like an Andrew Luck over um, a Saquon Barkley all day and twice on Sunday? But that being said, I'm not sold on any of this year's quarterbacks. And I don't, you know, I think it's apparent that the Giants weren't either. So that's why to me, it's a little bit more excusable in that there wasn't that quote unquote, can't miss prospect, the Andrew Luck, the Peyton Manning um, and on down the line. You know, would the Rams be the Rams without Gurley if they did? If they just had Goff and they had, I don't know, Isaiah Peed and, and whoever else was was there before him? Would the Jaguars be the Jaguars without Fournette if it was Chris Ivory and TJ Yeldon still? Um, you saw how Arizona fell apart without David Johnson. Um, so that would be kind of the only point on that. Um, just to wrap this up, do you have any thoughts on kind of that thought process? And then we'll move yeah, on to the sure, next one. Yeah, 100% agreed. And agreed, you know, if granted, if you aren't sold on any of the quarterbacks, uh, that's fine. Uh, taking Barkley in that position to me was it, you, you're guaranteeing that the Giants will be a middling team now for uh, a particularly long time because you have no replacement plan now for Eli Manning, who is way past his expiration date in the NFL. Uh, and um, and you'll have a good you have enough talent on both sides of the ball to win enough games that you're not going to have another swing at this. And they're you know, good. Good quarterbacks don't pop up in free agency, uh, at least very often. Uh, and um, and so if you're not sold on one of these guys, fine, trade trade that pick. There were other teams that were sold on on Sam Darnold uh, as the number one or the number two player in the draft. And you could have really uh, stacked you know, and gotten more capital and, and potentially even set up, you know, set up the Cardinals. The Cardinals are going to be terrible this year. Get get them up into the second overall pick, move down to the 11th pick, pick up an offensive guard or a tackle or, you know, somebody to help your, your sorry defense uh, and uh, get the Cardinals first pick from next year. Right. I mean, like you, you could have set yourself up in a in a better way than using that particular capital on a player who, in my opinion, can again can be he can go on to go to the hall of fame uh i don't think i think the ceiling that you will ever get in terms of a team performance just by having him on your squad is probably he makes the you make the playoffs because he single-handedly changes enough games that you win 10 games one year right i don't think i don't think you're talking about super bowl on on just on his shoulders. Yep. Let me ask you these last two questions, then we got to move on because we'll spend all day on this. <laughs> in, in a vacuum, what is the yeah. the, the lowest pick uh, or the highest pick you would spend on a running back in the NFL draft? And then 
What do you think the records of two teams last year would be without their stud running backs? And that's the Jacksonville Jaguars and the LA Rams. Uh, boy, uh, I, I don't think that the Rams really would have been impacted very much by not having Gurley. And this is maybe controversial, but like the Rams, the Rams, uh, especially like they called an extremely dynamic offensive game plan. Uh, and it really kind of allowed Jared Goff, who I think is a average at best quarterback to look very good. Right. And I think that was mostly based on McVay's scheme and, and just kind of their methodology and how they approached drive construction and when to, you know, when to throw, when to pass things like that. They were on the forefront of, you know, passing on first and 10, which is shown to be significantly more uh, successful way to approach, you know, uh, you know, a drive. Um, and, in, and you take Gurley out and yeah, he was the workhorse. Yeah. He ate up, you know, he, he converted a lot of the important first downs for them. Sure. Uh, but uh, I don't think a replacement level player is going to be that significant of a downgrade on their offense. Um, same with Fournette, really. I, you know, Fournette, I really don't understand, uh, you know, why he was a top four pick necessarily. He looks like he's going to have tons of problems staying healthy throughout his career. Uh, and the Jacksonville Jaguars survived and thrived entirely based on the performance of their defense and Blake Bortles not turning off, turning over the ball last year. So I, in those two examples, I, I don't think you're taking those teams from uh, playoff contenders to also rans just by replacing the, run, the, the key running back piece. Um, and the other question you said, I don't think I would draft a running back in the top two rounds probably. Wow. Okay. Uh, and this is again, mostly just because you can get a guy like Dion Lewis in free agency. Uh, you can get a guy uh, like LeGarrette Blunt in free agency, as we saw a couple years now, ago. Both the of Pats. those guys are complementary backs to a workhorse in Derrick Henry um, and et cetera. For this year, yeah. But uh, Deion Lewis was. But he's part shown. Of Deion Lewis has shown committee. that he can't, couldn't be healthy as a three down back, is the other thing. No doubt. And I don't think you necessarily want a three down back. I think you want to. I think if I'm constructing a roster from scratch, I want a running back core who has the ability to um, to catch the ball out of the backfield. Uh, I think I want a good short yardage guy uh, who I can hand off and count on him to get first, you know, first and goals. He can put get the ball over the goal line. Third and one, he can convert when we when needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I don't think I need I don't need a game changer. I don't need a guy who's going to bust off 50 and 60 yard runs from time to time and, and put up impressive fantasy stats because I don't think. That's how you win long term. Yeah. And, and Phil- I, I would I would put more more of my capital into the wide receiver position than the running back position if we're talking skill position players. Yeah, and Philadelphia has shown that that model works. And again, to me, I would take a David Johnson or a Le'Veon Bell over the the Dion Lewis, uh, Legarrette Blount. You know, building three roster spots to do what one player can do in one, I think to me is worth it. But that's again, this is where Football Outsiders agrees with you. I'm just going to finish this up with um, in the run. It says the sister statement to you have to establish the run that a team is. X, you know, Team X is 8-1 when running back John Doe runs for at least 100 yards. Unless John Doe is possessed by otherworldly spirits the way Adrian Peterson was a couple years ago, the team isn't winning because of his 100-yard games. He's putting up 100-yard games because his team is winning. Um, so again, they agree with you. Um, so let's move on here. <laughs> yeah, that, and that just speaks to causation and causality, which is a huge thing that that uh, the kind of the talking heads seem to miss. And I know, I know that you're on the right side of this, which is just like, yeah, you can't point at a team that went 14 and two and say, 
say, hey, look how many, you know, look how successful their running game is. Obviously, we need to run like them. Like they're putting away the game at the end. They're, you know, they're they're able to run at the end of the game when they need to to keep the other team from coming back. Uh, and uh, you know, that's a, that's an important thing to be able to do. But it certainly doesn't, uh, you know, go all the way to you know causation. Uh, it's just correlation. So interesting stuff. For Fascinating sure. topic. I love talking about this. Yeah, no, it, it's you know, polarizing maybe a bit too strong of a word, but there's two sides to every coin, and that's probably one of the biggest ones in the NFL now. And flipping to the other side of the ball, the next one on the Football Outsiders Almanac's pregame show are quotes, a great defense against the run is nothing without a good pass defense. Uh, Jacksonville may be the case in point of this in that, you know, their secondary was out of this world. Um, and also, you know, had some uh, struggles against the run. Other times they looked elite. They were kind of up and down. So as we, I can kind of read this whole one. This is a correlated (laughs) absurdity of established the run with rare exceptions. Teams win or lose with the passing game more than the running game. And by stopping the passing game more than the running game, Ron Jaworski puts it best. The pass gives you the lead and the run solidifies it. The reason why teams need a strong defense in the playoffs is not to shut down the run early. It's to keep the other team from icing the clock. If they get the lead, which speaks to what you said earlier, you can't mount a comeback if you can't stop the run. Note that good pass defense may mean good pass rush other than good defensive backs. What's your take on that? I, I love it. It's that was such a concise summary. This was one of my favorite paragraphs of the whole book. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, uh, and, and it's, it, you know, it's, it speaks to, uh, I, you know, you brought it up earlier. Cowboys draft Zeke Elliott. Again, he may go on and have a hall of fame career. He may be the next Emmitt Smith. They should have taken Jalen Ramsey. That's my feeling. <laughs> they they whiffed. They whiffed. <laughs> they whiffed. I, that's that's a, that's a strong take, but I like it. Um, again, <laughs> I'm with. I mean, the the old average is of uh, defense, you know, offense wins games, defense wins championships. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Philadelphia's defense was won the championship, and New England's uh, defense won or offense won game. So I don't know where I stand on that. Uh, defense, I uh, I. Yeah, who won, who won the championship though? Really, it was it was Doug Peterson's play calling. I feel yeah, like that's true. Converting com, converting the fourth and goal with that uh, Philly special. Uh, Philly special was was unbelievably huge moment. Momentum wise, giving them the kind of confidence heading into halftime. All all for all the factors, uh, and then maybe may, maybe no play more important in all of the uh, in all of the you know all of the play, all of the season. The most important play was going forward on fourth and one at about midfield uh, as the fourth quarter was winding down. Getting a touchdown on that drive to ice the game, keep the ball out of Brady's hands. Uh, that was uh, that yeah, was absolutely and- that was absolutely masterful uh, game planning, play calling in in game situational football. It was it was that was where the game was won, in my opinion. Yeah, and I don't want to put the whole season down to one 60-minute Super Bowl game in terms of philosophy, but I think there's a lot of takeaways there. I mean, again, the game may be different if Brady catches that ball. You know, it's hard to oh, put, yeah, put no a vacuum, doubt, no doubt. you know, put yeah. a, a whole philosophy of how to build your team on one 60-minute game because there's just so much variance in one game. Um, oh, of course. But yeah, I think the, the point is taken. Next, running on third and short is more likely to convert than passing on third and short. On average, passing will always gain more yards than running with one very important exception. When a team is just one or two yards away from a new set of downs or on the goal line on third and one a run will convert for a new set of downs 36 percent more often than a pass expand that to all third and fourth downs with one to two yards to go and the run is successful 40 percent more often with these percentages the possibility of a long gain with a pass is not worth the trade-off of an incomplete that kills the drive agree disagree incredible 
Incredible. Uh, the, the, the little nugget at the end of this blew my mind. Uh, the teams passed roughly 60% of the time on third and two, even though runs in that situation are 20% more light, more off, more convert 20% more often. They pass 68% of the time on fourth and two, even though runs in that situation convert twice as often. That, that is just mind blowing. And it, you know, and it's this kind of like having those numbers and trusting those numbers was what really kind of defined the Eagle season last year. I felt like, uh, especially their postseason, And, you know, it goes against your, you know, your biases and your kind of conventional wisdom and all, all of those things, because you think, Oh, it's fourth and two. They're going to expect us to run here. We better pass. Right. And an incomplete pass completely blows that up. So that, you know, you, you have so many more moving parts, uh, that it's just, you know, the numbers are not with you to try to pass in that situation. Uh, and I think, you know, there are a handful of coaches who understand that and they run on fourth and two. We saw, we saw Carson Wentz, uh, convert so many fourth and shorts last year with sneaks and quarterback runs. It was like, that was like their bread and butter in like, you know, in, in between the forties could sustain a drive with Carson Wentz converting a fourth and one or a fourth and two. It was, it was, uh, it was just, uh, you know, so important to their success. I felt like. Yeah. I completely agree with absolutely everything. I'm, you know, it, it's one of those things where do you trust, um, the numbers of, you know, and it, again, the NFL has become such an analytical kind of following baseball and the quote unquote, their version of saber metrics, which DVOA is, uh, and then you flip that over to, okay. Um, I have, you know, Odell Beckham jr. On the outside, or I have, a, you know, Julio Jones, I have a six and I have Rob Gronkowski versus, you know, Dion Lewis and at face value, you know, some people say, okay, if it doesn't work out, you tip your cap, but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's much like a model driven handicapper like you are. Do you trust your numbers or do you trust your gut? And when those two things don't yeah. agree, it, it can spell yeah, trouble often, you know? So oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. For uh, sure. It's a, it's, it's a very weird concept. Uh, so it is. Uh, the next one, standard team rankings based on total yardage are inherently flawed. Um, we can that touch one's it. No brainer. Let's keep going. That yeah. one's a no brainer. Yeah. yeah. If you're looking at total yardage for anything to try to measure team success, I will say, because I think that this could be the jumping off point, is are you a believer in net yards per play as kind of the quote-unquote professional's goldmine? Because that's every tweet you read is that this is the saving grace stat. If you just take these, you'll hit 57%. What do you think? I'm not a believer in that. Tell me why. Well, I, I I just can't wrap. I just can't get there with the fact that you're taking, you're entirely divorcing it from the situation itself. I feel like you're missing a, an enormously important part of, Oh, here, here's a great example. Who is the best, uh, uh, YPP team last year? Falcons, right? Falcons. It wasn't even freaking close. Guess who never lived up to, uh, their YPP, the Falcons. Yeah. Like, they, like it, 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 and I think that when, if, and you know, and what makes DVA so important and so helpful in terms of forward projections is they take into account when you're getting the yards, how you're getting the yards uh, there. It, you know, it, it's giving you more credit for converting you know, for a two yard run on third and one, than it's giving you credit for a five yard pass on third and 10. Yep. Right. And, and that stuff will, you'll get penalized sometimes for those things. If you have enough, if you have enough sample in your sample uh, in the YPP space, but you don't get penalized for those in the, in the DVOA space. So, you know, in the end, is there probably some sort of way of doing like a hybrid approach to these sort of things? 
probably. And that's probably, you know, something that I'm going to explore this season to try to make my model model a little sharper because, you know, that I've, I've noticed at least DVOA losing a little bit of its, you know, predictiveness over the last couple of years. And I don't, it, it could, that could be entirely because, you know, the books are baking, you know, the, the, so many people are using it that now you're not really distinguishing yourself from the market. You just, you are the market kind of. And yep. so it's tougher to find an edge that way. Uh, but, you know, I, I still think in terms of kind of having a more true sense of how strong a team is, you're going to get more out of DVOA than you're going to get out of YPP. Yep. And again, a week to week spread pro- projection or um, that I can't argue with numbers and it's been proven to be profitable for a very long time. Um, so I don't know exactly, you know, where I fall on it. I use it as a tool to look at. I will just blindly take it and much like I won't just blindly take DVOA, but I think that it has its oh, place. Sure. Um, and I think it's worth, you know, incorporating, but it's not the gospel that I think, uh, a few prominent, uh, media sports handicappers would make it out to be that tweeted out as, as the gospel of all things sports handicapping, but complete that's, that is that we are on the exact same page for sure. And, and, you know, and like I would even advocate with DVOA, it like, like you said in the intro, it's a starting point. Like, Get some numbers, see where they're pointing, uh, and then you know incorporate it into a broader handicap. Like, don't just stop with just the, you know, don't just stop there. So, completely agree. Next one: a team will score more points when playing a bad defense, and will give up more points when playing a a good offense. <laughs> they 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 back themselves yeah. up. They said this sir, sounds absurdly basic, but when people consider team and player stats without looking at a strength of schedule, they are ignoring this. In 2012, for example, rookie Russell Wilson had a. De- higher DVOA than fellow rookie Robert Griffin because he faced a more difficult schedule, even though Griffin had slightly better stats. Uh, so agree, disagree on strength of schedule kind of, you know, this one's weird because you have to kind of extrapolate it out into, again, not what you believe, but it's just, this one's just kind of saying that, you know, it, everything is not as easy as what meets the eye, even though stats say one thing. And again, this is different than fantasy DFS than handicapping is the big takeaway to me. Yeah. And I, and and I do agree with the the basic, and this is the D in DVOA. This is defense adjusted, mm-hmm. right? The and it's to me at least, it's a, it's why DVOA is is an important jumping off point beyond just the sort of the more nuanced part of it, which is like the value of any given play in that situation. But uh, you know, if it, it's important to know that like what would what would in a vacuum be considered an average performance might be great if it was against a above average defense. Right. You know, and if you don't kind of have a way of centering any given uh, event, then the uncertainty overall is just going to be way wider. Uh, and, you know, it, the, when it comes to statistics and analytics and handicapping football, football is inherently a small sample size. There's yeah. only 16 games. There's only <laughs> so, you know, there, you know, a couple of plays in any given game determine an outcome against the spread or against, you know, on a total. Uh, and so just living in that space, you need to do everything you can to try to kind of make the most of the data you have and adjusting for defense is the best way to do it. It's a weird concept because, you know, in the fantasy and DFS world that we live in, you know, some, you know, in streaming and all this stuff, when you take a quarterback, you know, in say Josh McCown going up against the worst passing defense in football and he throws for 400 yards and three touchdowns while Russell Wilson threw for 215 and it wins like the, the analogy I gave earlier, it's a weird thing to say, no, that other quarterback with the lesser stats had the winning game when there's less, you know, people want to only look at things um, from a stats <laughs> perspective. And it's just, yeah. you know, it's, it's just, yeah. it's that quote unquote next level of thinking. But this one is, it's kind of, that's all that this saying is that don't take things at exactly what they are for long-term sample sizes. And again, 
streaming quarterbacks and that stuff for all the DFS guys out there and stuff is that's where they make their money is taking advantages of those markets. Um, and be, be just, again, there's a reason why, you know, in season long stuff, you pick those guys up and you drop them. It's because that one game is going to be the outlier. And if you can predict that outlier, you can make a lot of money. Um, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be a, a, a season yeah. long thing, you know? So the next one, yes. Yeah. If their overall yards per carry are equal, a running back who consistently gains yardage on every play is more valuable than a boom and bust running back who is frequently stuffed at the line but occasionally breaks a long highlight-worthy run. Uh, our brethren at per- baseball perspectives believe that most precisely commo- most precise commodity in baseball is out. Teams only get 27 of them, and you can't afford to give up uh, and you can't afford to give one up for very little return. So imagine if there was a new rule in baseball that gave a team a way to earn another three outs in the middle of the inning. That would be pretty useful, right? That's the way football works. You may start to drive 80 yards away from scoring, but as long as you can earn 10 yards and four chances, you get another four chances. Long gains have plenty of value, but if those long gains are mixed with a lot of short gains, you're going to put the quarterback in a lot of difficult third and long situations. Yeah. Give yeah. me your take. I- yeah. So this one, again, this kind of challenged something that I hadn't thought much about until reading this. Um, and I, and I, it makes sense as you sort of think about it and it, it kind of forces you to go galaxy brain on just like a series, right? Like what should you do on first and 10, right? Like the, the, a lot of, you know, a lot of the old school play callers are like, well, let's run the ball. Let's gain a little yard. So we have a little better shot on you know, second, uh, you know, so, so we're not dealing with second and 10 or third and 10. Um, and then, you know, the newer data has kind of challenged that and said, you know, Hey, if you're running against a stack box on first and 10, if people know your tendencies in that situation are to run, uh, and you're only, you know, gaining two yards or if you get stopped or whatever, then, you know, it actually has a lower success rate and you should be passing on first and 10 and you should be, you know, doing high percentage pass plays and things like that on first and 10. And, and that gives you more flexibility on second down and things like that. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's carries directly over into, um, you know, if you can count on four yards from your running back, whenever you give them the ball on second and six, then you're, you know, you're going to sustain more drives and, uh, and yeah, you're not going to have highlight plays. Yeah. You're not going to, um, you know, you, you're Time not of possession have. and all that. It goes yeah, into right, you know, yeah. just, what's better, an 80-yard pass on first and 10 or a 10-play, 60-yard, uh, seven-minute drive? You know, great, that, that's great, what that's great saying. Point. Great point. And, for, and I think you can even extend this a little bit to like quarterback play. Like a guy like Cam Newton, like, yeah, he can produce highlight-worthy plays. He can throw the deep ball spectacularly. He can get you amazing touchdowns by running and flying through the air like freaking Superman. Right. But he has these wild windows of inaccuracy that, you know, are drive killers. And so having, you know, having a, a quarterback who has a, a higher, you know, a, a more, um, you know, a more reliable, accurate, you know, somebody who's more accurate with the football more regularly, you have the potential to sustain drives more often. You're putting your defense in less disadvantaged situations and things like that. So, you know, I think this kind of plays right into that same same thinking. 
And I, I, I tend to agree with it. Yeah, completely. And it's going to take it next level when you think of quarterbacks and stuff like that when it's not just running the ball. This one I want to mm-hmm. touch on because I think it's we're going to be a jumping off point to a team that I know is going to be constantly professional all season, and that's the Chicago Bears. Shotgun formations are generally more efficient than formations with the quarterback under center. Over the past mm-hmm. five seasons, offenses have averaged roughly 5.9 yards per play from shotgun or the pistol, but just 5.1 yards per play with the quarterback under center. Now, Mr. Trubisky had never taken a center under center snap while he was at North Carolina. So what did the great brains at Chicago want to do? They put him under center um, and he was <laughs> absolutely awful. Um, this was a team that was still professional, still not covering games. Um, I have this kind of, you know, big picture outlook on, on things and handicapping um, that I've you know, I always buy and sell things long term. If I'm gonna, I'm not gonna. You know, you're more situational. I'm more big picture. And at the end of the year, when I, you know, look up and the Browns have covered two games, you know, there's not a lot of things thought <laughs> process that goes into that. Chicago is another yeah. team that I just I don't get in bed with bad teams. Um, you know, the Matt Stafford uh, statistic is another one. I look big picture um, and take the stock market approach, whereas you are much more situational, um, which Absolutely. I think is, is great yeah. to kind of blend the two together. Um, so again, as I touched on this, uh, roughly more 5.9 yards per play than shotgun. Now, I think a lot of this needs to be weighted that they do because you're in the shotgun when you're playing catch up, when you're playing running gun, all these type of things, two minute drill. Um, so they do uh, weigh this out. But I think that this one it can be skewed if you don't uh, weigh it the way that DVOA does. Um, so let's touch on that shotgun as a whole. I mean, this one's kind of probably boring to touch on, but let's equate it to a team that I, again, I know is going to be professional this year because of the move to shotgun. Uh, and that's the Chicago bears and their in your take on kind of the shotgun offense and, you know, even kind of wildcats kind of died out, but the pistol is alive and well and the RPOs and all that type of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So you bring up a great, great point. Uh, and this was actually something else I read later on in the book in the, in the, uh, chapter about the chiefs. Uh, the new Bears coach is uh, former offensive coordinator under Andy Reid, Matt Nagy. Nagy installed um, an especially innovative offense for the Kansas City Chiefs to start the season last year, and the results were immediately realized in five wins. Right, Alex Smith had the most efficient five-game sample of his career. Early Number in one season. in downfield passing yards per attempt as it was, well. It, it was utterly incredible. I mean, Alex Smith. The guy that was constantly criticized and and lampooned all offseason for not being able to score a touchdown against the Steelers in the playoffs that year, uh, you know, all of a sudden couldn't you know couldn't miss on the deep ball to Tyreek Hill. All of that was lent by the scheme. Um, and granted, it waned, right? Like defenses caught up to them. Like they definitely, uh, you know, they definitely were. It was more gimmicky than like why the Rams or the Eagles were successful on offense last year because theirs was, was more like, okay, the way we're going to approach a game plan is going to be, you know, going to, going to, um, uh, take advantage of the inefficiencies. Uh, and instead the chiefs just like, okay, well, we think this is a very one specific inefficiency that we're going to capitalize. And they just hammered it and it worked out great for them for weeks and weeks. It got them to the playoffs, but then again, you know, they obviously collapsed against the Titans and, in classic Andy Reid fashion, a lot of that was because they didn't really have any more tricks in their in their book, and so I worry a little bit about uh, um, I worry a little bit about uh, Nagy uh, and how it how it how it'll go in Chicago long term over the course of the season. But I would expect immediate short term returns. Yep. Uh, and maybe a, maybe a more than any other reason you mentioned at the beginning. Mitch Trubisky was completely misused last year in a John Fox offense. John Fox was not running a you know, 2008, you know, 2017 
caliber offense any longer. It was, it was, uh, it was painfully apparent week in, week out. And, uh, you know, so just, you know, I don't, I don't think any team, I don't think this is even arguable. I don't think any team upgraded more substantially in the coaching department <laughs> than the Chicago bears. And so on, you know, just on that alone, they should, you know, they, they should be, you know, they should be considered a professional side. I think say, uh, say what you want about Alex Smith. So. To me, I do not think Mitch Trubisky is going to be anything more than a, than a career uh, backup quarterback. Um, oh, wow. I really okay. don't. I mean, his, again, I know he was misused. They completely tried to fit a circle into a round peg or however that saying goes. I get that. Sure. I just need to <laughs> see it. And again, there's nobody that proved me wrong more than Jared Goff. Um, so I think that that's a great comparison. Again, I'm completely sold that much like Cleveland, Chicago is going to be a, you know, purely professional team. They're going to be, um, the public's going to hate them because they saw what they did last year. I'm just not ready to get into bed. Um, again, you particularly, you know, saying that all that type of stuff with Nagy is going to be huge because they're going to be an underdog and you're going to be able to take advantage, uh, maybe in the market, especially, especially early the way that the chiefs were priced. Um, if, if that situation, um, does come to fruition, I just, I, I need to see it and I'm okay taking a worse number down the line only because, and again, um, programming note here for anyone that that thinks we're going to go into all 32 teams i think that this <laughs> this is a lot easier to to apply what uh football outsiders almanac says to you know particular teams um rather than going into kind of the the six page write-ups that they do just because um it doesn't Couldn't make sense more. so you know we'll just kind of apply these to the uh to each teams and kind of how these uh situations and statements apply to them i think will be a lot more useful um so with that being said um Again, this is what I want to touch on as the jumping off point for this particular one when we talk about Chicago Bears and all that type of stuff. Are they yep. going to win a lot of those games that they would quote-unquote cover? Because you know where I'm going with this. 85% of the last three years, the spread <laughs> has not mattered. Don't cap the spread, cap the winner. Yep, 8.5 times out of 10. 85%. If an underdog covers the spread, they win outright. And if a favorite wins, they cover the spread. So yeah. how, how anxious are you to get into bed with Mr. Trubisky and the Chicago bears? Uh, well, I'm pretty anxious a handful of times over the course of the season. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I think, I think that, uh, um, I don't know. It's going to be so damn tough for them. The NFC North is going to be so damn tough to handicap across the board. I think the lions are better. People think obviously Aaron Rodgers is back. Huge expectations for the Packers. Uh, the Vikings have the most complete defense I can think of in years. Uh, and they've, you know, Kirk cousins may not be an upgrade, but maybe he is. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. Cause they have some very tough spots, but that, but then again, you know, anyone that rolls into Chicago expecting an easy win on Sunday is going to be in for a rude surprise. Agree. All right. Next one. A running back with 370 more carries during the regular season will usually suffer either a major injury or a loss of effectiveness the following year, unless he's named Eric Dickerson. Um, the 300, the curse of 370 was expanded in the pro football focus perspective 2005 and included seasons with 390 more carries. Let me just give you some examples. Terrell Davis, Jamal Anderson, Edger and James all blew out their knees. Larry Johnson broke his foot. Earl Campbell and Eddie George went from legendary powerhouses plotting replace to 
uh, replacement level players. Sean Alexander broke his foot and became a plotting replacement level player. This is what happens when a running back is overworked to the point of having at least 370 carries during their regular season. DeMarco Murray was the latest player to follow up a high workload with a disappointing season. I'm going to pull up the 2018 uh, carry leaders. Um, while nice. You, while you touch on that um, right now is kind of a, a whole outlook. Yeah, this applies for if you're, I think this is more useful for fantasy than handicapping. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I, I think, uh, if you're, you know, if, if you've ever been the, on the wrong side of the Sean Alexander regression or, uh, that one was absolutely spectacular. I don't know if you played fantasy back then, but, yeah. uh, that one was just unbelievable. And, you know, it's, it's, it's weird that there is happens to be a magic number like that, but I, I completely buy into this. There was only one running back with, um, I'm sorry. There was no running backs with 370 last year. Le'Veon Bell was the closest with 321. Everyone else is under 288. LaShawn McCoy and Melvin Gordon at 287 and 284 for the next ones. Mm. What was, do you have by the chance uh, what Le'Veon Bell was the previous season? Cause I uh, feel yep. like he slipped a little last year. Yep, hang on. And I will say when we again start bringing this back to kind of where this um, all comes in, Le'Veon Bell, if there was ever a time where the Steelers are going to run him into the ground because they know he's leaving <laughs> next year, I mean, he may hit 400 this carries. Yeah. Um, so let me yeah. bring up last year. Last year we had, yeah. um, I think he was hurt around suspension, so it's going to be a little low. 261. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, he only played 12 games. Yeah, okay. 261. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott, 322. Um, the year before, LeGarrette Blunt, 300. Um, and DeMarco Murray. So nobody, um, let wow. me see. I want to see the last time that somebody actually went over 370. I'm going to bring up 2015. Maybe this has trickled into the uh, GMs and they actually buy into this. Yep. Yeah, that would make sense to me. 2014 or fifth. Yeah. 2014 was Adrian Peterson at 327. Um, and that's, yeah. So nobody's in the last four years have gone over 370. So obviously they're okay. buying into this as well. Um, but again, I think that this is a good thing to because I think Le'Veon Bell will go over that this year. How about that for a bold take? Because they do not give, <laughs> they don't care. They will, they will run this guy into the ground, knowing he's not coming back, and he's their best uh, rushing um, kind of you know weapon. Obviously, he catches the ball did, a ton. Did, but. Uh, did Le'Veon Bell pass the eye test for you last year? Do you think he still had the same explosiveness, the same impact, or do you feel like kind of teams are catching on to his little stutter step gimmick, wait until the hole opens up type of? movement. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He had the same lateral burst, uh, same patience, but he didn't have the same straightaway speed. And I would even go further to say eye test wise before getting hurt, David Johnson uh, looked better to me than Le'Veon Bell. Ah, interesting. Interesting. We would, uh, have you done any fantasy drafts yet? No, I have not. Yeah, I haven't either. No, um, it's early. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> All right. The total quality of an NFL team is four parts offense, three parts defense, and one part special teams. There are three units on a football team, but they are not of equal importance. Work by Chase Smart, or Chase Stewart, Neil Payne, and Brian Burke suggests a split between offense and defense of roughly 58-42 without considering special teams. Our research suggests that special teams contributes to about 13% of total performance. If you measure the remaining 87% with a 58-42 ratio, you get roughly 4-3-1. When we compare range of offenses, defense, and special teams DVOA ratings, we get the same results. With the best and worst offenses roughly 130% stronger 
uh, than the best defenses and roughly four times stronger than the best and worst special teams. Basically, this is telling you special teams doesn't matter. And this has kind of been quantified yeah. in that yeah. with the kickoff being moved up, um, all that type of stuff. I will say I put a little bit more into punt returners and there's always outliers in this is the thing, right? If you Good have point. a Dante Hall, you have a Devin Hester, um, maybe you think Cordell Patterson is going to fill that role for New England this year. Um, obviously, Julian Edelman's out, so he's going to be the primary special teams guy. Um, you know, Sony Michelle ran, Sony Michelle rain back kicks. Um, agree, disagree. That kind of special teams is is going away. Yeah, I haven't really accounted for it specifically. And uh, one of the later on points that they made, you know, plays even more into this, which is like it's tough to predict special teams and who's even going to be good and bad and whatnot. Uh, there's not a really great way to do it. Um, offense being slightly more valuable than defense is interesting. This is the first time I had read or thought about this, and I'm probably going to try to incorporate it in my model by upweighting offense a little bit this year, just to see if I can, you know, get a little bit sharper. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, this was interesting and it kind of confirmed my previous bias, which was like, I pretty much ignore special teams. Yeah, no, I agree. Offense is more consistent from year to year than defense and offensive performance is easier to project than defensive performance. Special teams is less consistent than either. Nobody in the NFL understood this concept better than former Indianapolis Colts GM Bill Polian. Both the Super Bowl champion Colts and four-time AFC champion uh, Buffalo Bills of the early 1990s were built around the idea that if you put together an offense that can dominate the league year after year, eventually you will luck into a year where good health and a few smart decisions will give you a defense good enough to win a championship. As the Colts learned in 2006, you don't even need a year, just four weeks. Even the New England Patriots, who are led by a defensive first head coach and Bill Belichick, have been more consistent on offense than on defense since they began their run of success in 2001. The Patriots are going to put this to the test this year, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, right? That's, that's the thing. I mean... Man, who on this Patriots death chart inspires any confidence on the defensive side of the The McCourty oh, my brothers. Goodness. Stephon Gilmore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the they, secondary, secondary has a, yeah, a chance to be a little tricks. bit better. Okay. Okay. Uh, you weren't a Malcolm Butler fan. I thought he was very overrated. I don't, I think if he doesn't make, if oh. he doesn't make that interception, I don't know that he even starts. I think that it is, I, I'm a huge, now I have to preface by saying I, I was born, I've spent my first 25 years of life in Boston. Um, so I was grown and bred to be a Patriots fan, right? I put sure. a lot of stock in the fact that number one, Bill Belichick, the GM is a bottom five GM. I really yes. think the only reason that Bill <laughs> Belichick, the coach, survives, um, or the Bill Belichick, the GM, survives, is that because Bill Belichick, the coach, can make it work. I believe that this is a. Don't get me wrong. Tom Brady's the best quarterback to ever play, but Jacoby Brissett and Jimmy Garoppolo went three and one, and Matt Castle went eleven and five. I think that New England would maybe have two to three less Super Bowls if Tom Brady was never a New England Patriot. Um, and again, I mean, you saw what Jimmy Garoppolo did. Uh, was that the right move? Was it not? I mean, time will tell. Peyton Manning won a Super Bowl while Andrew yeah. Luck was in Indianapolis. So was it yeah. or was it not the right move? You know what I mean? I guess that, that can kind of be our jumping off point here is that, um, you know, w what do you think about that thought, that process? Uh, man, it's so tough. Uh, I have reasonably high expectations for the 49ers this year Me on too. offense. Uh, and it's all born out of the, the Jimmy G plus Shanahan combo. I don't, Completely I don't agree. Think, I mean, I think one without the other, uh, maybe doesn't do as great, but together they complement each other very well. Tell uh, me about Marquise Goodwin. <laughs> he's going to be great. I can't wait to see this guy fly on Sunday. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch the transition from Tom Brady to the next 
uh, you know, to the next quarterback in, in, uh, in new England. And, you know, increasingly there's going to be pressure on Belichick to find a way to overcome the deficiencies that Belichick, the GM is handing him. Um, the last I'm losing track now of how many bad drafts the Patriots have had over the last several years. It's, when you uh, go to an AFC championship so game bad. with Rache Caldwell and Jabbar Gaffney, you are in, Tom incredible. Brady in his prime. You, you are dead to me. And wide, re- <laughs> wide receivers in particular, if you're not familiar with this, let me read you. Oh, this has been kind so of my, my call to arms of Patriots wide receivers uh, that Bill Belichick has drafted after Julian Edelman. This is... Uh, Taylor Price, Jeremy Ebert, Aaron Dobson, Josh Boyce, Jeremy Gallen, Devin Lucian, Malcolm Mitchell, who don't forget was the compensation for Chandler Jones and Braxton Berrios. Oh my God. And let's not oh leave out God. Chad Jackson. <laughs> I mean, there, there's been so many more. That's just since Julian Edelman. Um, check the talent evaluator has an enormous gaping blind spot for wide receivers. I don't understand it. Whatever his think- system and model is, I think that he just thinks that he can plug and play wide receivers in his system. Again, here's the thing. People are so up in arms about, you know, what their wide receiver core will look at this year. What is different than last year? They didn't have Edelman all season. They're only not going to have him for four years. All they did is switch out Danny Amendola for Eric Decker, who Eric Decker is a perennial thousand yard receiver when his quarterback is somewhat decent. And Amendola only played, I believe what? Six, seven games last year um, being hurt. Chris Hogan is there. Um, what is the difference and why are people so down on new England's wide receiver cores knowing that well, Tom Brady's coming off an MVP here? Ship, Obviously cooks shipping, is the big one. Yep. Yeah. Shipping cooks was a weird one, but I never, I personally didn't feel like, Cooks and Brady were ever on the same page, even when they had successful. There's you know, no they put up. They su- need a six. I want a six-five big workhorse. That's what I want. Maybe it'll be Kenny Britt. To me, they could have got a guy like Cortland Sutton, who would have been great in there. Um, again, Kenny Britt is, you know, physically who they need, but talent-wise, that's not it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, I think at, at its baseline, uh, Josh McDaniels coming back instead of taking over the Colts is going to be huge for this team. Um, I think McDaniels is an underrated schemer, um, and that's not a pun. Uh, he's an underrated, uh, scheme development guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, he'll figure out a way to get, you know, Barrios to 50 or 60 catches or something insane like that. And, you know, I mean, Brady's, um, exceptionalism can't be overstated. Uh, he's the best quarterback of all time. Why are people and saying he's going to fall off a cliff after saying that for five years and coming off an MVP? Uh, he's, uh, I don't know. What's the difference between 40 and 41? <laughs> I mean, he's, I def- he's completely defied all of the, uh, all of the regression expectations for an NFL player. Um, and, um, yeah, he's, you know, he's still got Gronkowski. Obviously Gronkowski may not stay healthy. And that's a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of a worry when you don't have any backup plan for, uh, for maybe the most important part of your offense, it's not named Tom Brady. Yep. Um, but um, but yeah, the the receiving situation in New England and Belichick, the GM, just because of Cooks for the rest of the podcast. Um, oh, that's like the why, only like, difference this year. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah, no, I I didn't think it was particularly solid last year. I thought yeah. there were, you know, I mean, I thought there were games where, um, you know, it was extremely difficult to, to find it. I mean, there were a couple of games. I'll give you uh, Tampa Bay where they won as an example. They should have absolutely obliterated that. And they win, Tampa Bay has they won like 33-7? Against Tampa? Yeah, it was a score. No, that, Tampa was like, it was like a Thursday, Thursday night, night game. game right? It was, yeah. like a fi- it was like a five-point line, and they covered by like 
they covered by like a like a like the hook, and yeah, Jameis yeah. Winston had a chance to win it at the end with a comeback. And it was what game like, am I thinking of? Where Tampa papers? got beat like fifty-two-seven. That that happened a couple times to Tampa. Yeah, that happened yeah, against okay. New Orleans. They lost like thirty to 10. New Orleans. That's what it Panthers, was. Panthers, I think, beat them like thirty to seven. Yeah, the Tampa was bad in some games last year, but Tampa's secondary was especially bad. And I, you know, I thought that the Patriots really could have used a, a more solid performance out of their wide receivers in that game. They won anyway, you know, and the Patriots tend to win anyway yep. in a lot of situations. And so, you know, it's tough to get really worked up about it. But I say. I, you know, heading into the season, I'm concerned about the Patriots in the first four weeks of the season. I'm probably going to be fading them a couple yeah. times. They go against some tough defenses in um, Houston and Jacksonville week one and week two. Uh, they have a tricky back-to-back road games week two and week three. Week three, they're heading to Detroit. I think Detroit's defense is a little underrated. So I'm prepared to see a oh, rocky boy. start you, to the season. Good luck with, with that, sir. You're going to be betting all those. All, you're, you're going to be taking the Patriots. Betting new. Against, you do not get rich in the NFL betting against the New England Patriots. They are the number one team against the spread the last five years. I just won't do it. But I can see the thought process to do it. Next up, we can we can liken this. We got to we got to move off the Patriots. <laughs> okay. This one we I know who we're going to like or you know connect this to. Injuries regress to the mean on the season level, and teams that avoid injuries in a given season tend to win more games. So, well, obviously, if your players stay healthy, that you're paying them to, you know, be the best on the field, uh, you're going to win more games. Let's talk about the <laughs> soon-to-be moving. Are they not Chargers? Because oh my God, this this team and this health. I mean. <sighs> There are, yeah. So there are no doubt teams with streaks of good or bad health over multiple years. However, teams who were speci- especially healthy or especially unhealthy, as measured by our adjusted games loss metric, almost always head towards league average in the subsequent season. Furthermore, injury or absence thereof has a huge correlation with wins and a significant impact on a team's success. Okay. What this says is if a team loses nine players the next year and the league average is three, it's going to regress because injuries are fluke, especially non-contact, et cetera, et cetera. That's all fine and dandy unless your name is the Chargers. I mean, already losing yeah. Verrett. Yeah. Antonio Gates is going to be the tight end one again this year. There's just they don't have anybody else. Um, let's let's talk about this. Um, <laughs> yeah. The uh, last year, six of the seven teams with the lowest uh, AGL, which again is adjusted games loss, made the playoffs. The Rams, uh, Falcons, Titans, Steelers, uh, Jaguars, and Carolina. Meanwhile, only one of the 10 teams with the highest made the playoffs, which is new Orleans at 24. Shocking to me. I did not realize it. a couple. Okay. So let me jump off on a couple of things here. Cause this is fascinating. The first is I was shocked that new Orleans was so, um, depleted by injuries last year for whatever reason. I just did not have that anywhere near the, uh, the front of my brain when thinking about their season. Yep. Um, I think of their 2017 season and I think of the spectacular con- contributions they got from their rookie class. Uh, across the board, and that has me buying into the the Saints again heading into this season because all those guys now are just one year more uh, in tune with the system, and they should produce even more more successfully. And um, I love the stories I hear coming out of camp about the kid uh, who blew the tackle against the Saints. Um, and the, the Saints chapter of Football Outsiders Almanac was fascinating. I learned a ton about the Saints just reading that chapter. Um, did you know that that guy, that guy is named Marcus Williams. He was the best, ended up being the best safety of the whole draft class, at least on rookie performance. Uh, did you know that that tackle where he whiffed on digs and took out his own guy, that was the only blown tackle he had in the entire season. And it happened to be the one that ended their season. Nope, I mean, I did just not. To- totally insane. 
And uh, and it sounded like he, you know, that's the kind of thing that can like totally ruin a guy. We saw that with like Raheem Moore. Like he was never the same after he blew that uh, coverage to against uh, Flacco and the Ravens in the playoffs uh, when he was on Denver. Um, but you know, the, everything I'm hearing, the guys look absolutely spectacular in camp. I'm, I'm buying into the saints this year. I'm looking very much forward to backing them. Uh, and, um, and then the other thing that this kind of tells me, at least in terms of when you look at like, okay, well, six of the seven teams with the lowest average games lost were, uh, were playoff teams. Like that, I mean, that kind of makes me think that like, if you're betting into the, that market, like you playoffs, yes or no, or, or putting big money on season win totals over and under, like you're flipping coins, whether you're t- that team's going to get injury luck or not. Right. And if you're, especially if you're laying juice on some of those things. So it's like, uh, you know, reading this and, and thinking about this and reading some of the previews they had, I was just like, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> maybe I <laughs> yeah. should be staying away from this entirely uh, and just kind of see how the injuries play out. Cause you know, if, if your team has to have good luck injury wise in order to make the playoffs, then then that's going to be the distinguishing factor. Um, as far as the Chargers go, my only thought on that, and this is again right from the Chargers chapter in the Football Outsiders Almanac, they crushed the ownership of the Chargers for how cheap of an operation they run. Mm-hmm. They are really nickel and diming a lot of uh, aspects of how they put together their franchise and their organization at large. I would uh, expect that absolutely trickles into the you know the health and training that they do season round for their players, how much support they give them, uh, the type of uh, facilities they have for dealing with injuries and training, the the staff that they put together as far as doctors and trainers and things like that go. Um, I'm guessing that it's all, it all has to be related because at this point it's either they're too cheap to pay for a good medical team or they literally are cursed by somebody. Uh, And you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, unbelievable that this goes on year in year out and we see these mega impactful injuries befall the chargers it's crazy yeah i mean you can say fluke and this and that and again i know that keenan allen to me keenan allen is a top five wide receiver in the league but at some point your body just says no and him coming off of a full injury or full injury free campaign last year is is a very scary thing i know especially because a lot of people are placing that plus 160 for them to win the afc west um so Again, you just never know what this type of stuff. I mean, there's the ultimate dictees out there every year in the baseball market of Noah Syndergaard's wins. They're always at 12 and a half, and it looks so good to be true because he's a top five, you know, top 10, at least top seven pitcher in baseball, but he just never stays healthy. Um, so <laughs> you know, all those season long props, all they are are just so, so dependent on uh, will a player stay healthy? And that's really what the prop should be. But I, uh, I missed one, so I want to go back to this because I want to touch on maybe a hot button topic that I wrote about in um, 10. 10 bold predictions for the NFL season. Rushing sure. is, is more dependent on the offensive line than people realize, but pass protection is more dependent on the quarterback himself than people realize. As, uh, yeah. So pass protection, some quarterbacks have better instincts for the rush than others. You know, this is Ben Roethlisberger extending plays. This is, you know, some, some of them being uh, statues, Carson Wentz uh, moving around, uh, mobile quarterbacks, uh, Deshaun Watson, et cetera, et cetera. Note yep. that moving around in the pocket does not necessarily mean scrambling. In fact, a scrambling quarterback will often take more sacks than the pocket quarterback because while he's running, um, a defensive line will catch him. Where I want to equate this to is the Dallas Cowboys because they have the offensive line, right? And to me, I made this statement last year. Dak Prescott will be out of the league in three years. So 
<laughs> I think that he all he is okay. is the ceiling of somebody like Tim Tebow. Now, obviously, they have Ezekiel Elliott back you there. Um, his season yard prop was the we touched on this. We, me and you talked about this earlier. That that was one of the um, kind of going to be my biggest unders of the year. I think it's thirty two ninety nine. Um, I love that under. Tell me about. Um, we touched on this a little bit with Dallas and how Ezekiel Elliott was. You know, you thought it was an absolute miss to take him that early. Um, he has rewarded them. Um, so offensive line for. Let's just talk about this from a Cowboys perspective. Yeah, yeah. Cowboys offensive line is ridiculously talented. And I'll throw they in have, touch on the Watson situation as well, because I think that that goes hand okay, in hand. Okay, yeah. Okay, good call. Uh, so the, the Cowboys offensive line, they have probably the second, I'll, I'll say the second best uh, tackle in football. In, uh, Lane Johnson? Um, uh, well, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to put, I'm okay putting Lane one and then putting number two, uh, Tyron Smith is, is the yep, second. Yeah, I agree. Uh, he would. He would have been number one for me, but he kind of all of a sudden slipped into like penalty mode last year. Yeah. And this is actually another nugget that I got somewhere in the football outsiders almanac, but when I read it, but, um, all penalties are not created equal and maybe the most damning penalty that you never think about. And you wouldn't even think it was that bad. You would be like, Oh fuck defensive pass interference. Like, Oh God, like that's a killer. Right. But you know, there's evidence, there's statistical evidence that suggests the worst penalty is the false start and like just automatically docking your offense five yards uh, is more impactful negatively than, uh, you know, playing to the line uh, tight coverage, you know, and it's not going to get called every time. A lot of times because you are called for the penalty, it's because you're particularly good, right? You know, you're playing, you're playing aggressively. Right. And so it's going to be there's going to be a lot of rewards for all the times that there are negative, you know, 40 yard, you know, penalties. Right. And it's, yeah, OK, it's a guaranteed score if you if you screw up. But, you know, at the same time, like you're going to bleed to death if you don't have a good, you know, a good cornerback who's playing aggressively. So it actually is like the good the offensive line and the ability not to fall to start actually is something that I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to this year. Just, uh, you know, who's accruing false start penalties and things like that. The Panthers are a team I have circled for that because. Matt Khalil is just a freaking penalty machine at tackle guy gets beat like a drum. So he tries to get as early a start as possible. Uh, and I'm there's question marks, red flags all over the Panthers offensive line. Um, but, uh, and, and the Cowboys to go back to their offensive line. Yes, they're good. Yes. They have an amazing center in Frederick. Yes. They have an amazing garden, Zach Martin. Yes. They have a, a top two tackle in, in Tyron Smith. They're playing, uh, they're, right tackle out of position. He's better as a guard. Um, they have had difficulty keeping all of these guys on the field at the same time. We saw, you know, the, the, the you know, everything kind of fell apart for the Cowboys last year, not just because of the Zeke suspension stuff that was ongoing all season, but uh, injuries to the offensive line. And if that's your only strength, then you got a problem. Uh, Dak Prescott, I have a bit of a, uh, I'm not, really prepared to make a conclusive statement one way or the other about his future as a quarterback. I think a Tim Tebow comparison is, is a little rough. Uh, <laughs> Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow had a really tough time, you know, throwing the football. If Tebow um, had that offensive line on that team, he would have a better record than Dak Prescott. It's, it's, it's not the craziest take I've ever heard, but it's a little rough as far as the comparison goes. I think Dak is a little bit uh, more effective of a football player than Tebow, but the, uh, and you know, and there are, there's one, particular play that I think Dak does extremely well. Um, if he's rolling out, uh, if you put him, you know, if you, if you challenge him a little bit and make him throw on the move, uh, he can actually hit 
very, very, very tight windows. Um, and, you know, he didn't have really any help in the receiving game last year. Des was washed. You know Whitney who would have looked washed. great? You know who look who would have looked great rolling out in a, <laughs> in a Dallas Cowboy uniform? <laughs> who? Johnny Manziel. Oh, man. Well, if Dak Prescott, if, if um, Jerry Jones got his way, Johnny Manziel would have replaced Tony Romo instead of Dak Prescott. Crazy, situ- crazy. crazy situation to think of, but it was a very real possibility. That would have been a much more entertaining timeline. Uh, Dak Prescott is pretty, uh, pretty boring. Um, the, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I am ready to hang a lot of the futility of the Cowboys last season. And just in general, uh, under performance over the years, I put a lot of that on Jason Garrett. I don't think he is a very, uh, creative offensive mind. I don't think he, you know, when, when the going got tough and his receivers weren't getting the separation that they used to get. Uh, he didn't come up with innovative schemes to get the guys open. He didn't use uh, Dak's strengths even to his advantage. Dak was kind of most effective by accident, I felt like, as opposed to the situations they put him in. Um, and I think, you know, if you put a more creative play caller in there, you would have a much better offense and things could be different. So I'm not prepared really to uh, call it a career for Dak Prescott, although his season yards under uh, – that's about as solid a, uh, a play as I can think of. Agree. Uh, it's not going to be good for him this year in Dallas. The receiving core is in utter shambles. He has no safety blanket tight end whatsoever. No one's emerging. Um, unless they fundamentally change the way they use Zeke Elliott and every yard he gains is via reception. Uh, that that uh, Dak passing yardage under skates. Yeah, I completely agree. Now let's let's switch this over in the offensive line to a mobile quarterback and that of Deshaun Watson because to me, sure. in not a good situation, there is a ton of similarities to what Deshaun Watson did and what happened with Robert Griffin III. Um, a rookie quarterback, yeah. a rookie mobile quarterback comes in, lights the league on fire, and tears his ACL along the way. Uh, tell me For why the second time. Yeah, tell me why Houston fans should not be freaking out over uh, Deshaun Watson and the similarities to Robert Griffin III. Oh, man. Well, so it's it's tough, man. Uh, It's tough. I have have slightly higher hopes for Deshaun Watson than I ever had for RG3. Um, The writing was on, and it's it's so easy to sit back and say this in hindsight, the writing was on the wall for RG3 after one year in Washington, not because of the um, injury itself, which was freaking was was a disgrace that Shanahan had him out there on the field uh, after he initially they, he blew, if I remember right uh, my my re, recasting of history here uh, RG3's knee blew up when Haloti Nada basically body slammed him week like 14 or 15 of the regular season the Redskins were already coasting to an AFC an NFC East title they were going to the playoffs uh, Shanahan implored James Andrews who is the team doctor of the Redskins not to put RG3 on the shelf, but just to kind of patch him back together, get him out there, get him ready for the playoffs. He played on that disgraceful field in Washington against Seattle and got just... He got the Bud Kilmer uh, treatment. Oh, my God. It was uh, was so bad. Oh, uh, Lance. He got the Lance Lance Harbor treatment. Yeah. He got the Lance Harbor treatment. Can you fix him? So bad. If he'll let me, make him understand. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) Great. Great Great comparison. Uh, this was the low point of the Mike 
Shanahan uh, career for, in my mind, at least I was like, you know, Hey man, like this guy may be a generational player for you. Like, what are you doing? Uh, apparently he didn't necessarily think as highly or he knew more about what was going on with RG three than the rest of us. And he was like, this is our only chance. So you know, ride or die. If he dies, he dies. Uh, and <laughs> he died. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's not, it's not good, you know? And, and, you know, he didn't necessarily have the tools that Watson had, uh, aside from his ability to run like the freaking wind. Uh, and so it was much more difficult for him to transition into more of a hybrid player, a la Cam Newton stylish. Um, and so it was, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it's not apples to apples comparison wise. I think, I think, uh, Deshaun Watson's a, a more complete quarterback than RG three ever was. Uh, and, but nonetheless, this is his second ACL, um, albeit. Will he uh, less, be neutered? It was less violent. It was in less violent fashion, right? Will, will he be neutered the same way that Cam Newton was two years ago? I, I could see it. I mean, uh, the Houston Texans offensive line is a problem. Yep. It's a huge problem. Uh, bottom five unit uh, across the league. Um, and, you know, he's got... Uh, he's got Hopkins to throw to Hopkins is otherworldly catch radius. He can make medium accuracy look like pinpoint accuracy because his catch radius is so, so big and his hands are so good. Uh, and so he has that going for him. Uh, he'll probably compile some decent stats. All of this said the rate that he was compiling touchdowns last year, it was completely unsustainable. Even if he had stayed healthy, like he was like on pace for, an all-time season statistic-wise, uh, and that was going to regress regardless. Uh, so I would say if you're a Texans guy, if you're, you know, if you're looking at the season with you know, huge high hopes and optimism, uh, I would say Deshaun Watson is a better quarterback than RG3 fundamentally. Uh, Bill O'Brien, I think, schemed well for Deshaun Watson. He knows who he has as a player. He knows how to, um, to scheme for his strengths. Uh, much more so, for instance, than Jason Garrett knows how to scheme for Dak Prescott's strengths. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see if uh, if they can keep him on the field this year and what kind of protection he can get from that ragtag offensive line. What, what, what do you think? Um, well, that RG3 take, I, I uh, that's kind of my own and one that I, I just saw so many similarities here. And to me, I think there's no way he can he, he will run as much. I don't think that they're going to let him. Um, I think Bill O'Brien kind of gets a negative, a little bit of an unfair shake with the talent and specifically at the quarterback position that he's had to work with. Um, so I think that he's a little bit better than maybe most people out there. Um, let me ask you this. If I told no you a hundred percent that either or that both Bill O'Brien and uh, Jason Garrett would be fired this year, who would be fired first from you? Uh, I would say Garrett. I mean, Garrett's absolutely a hundred percent on the hot seat. Um, Bill O'Brien, uh, I well see. I, this is the thing: is like I, I agree. With you. I think he's a better coach overall. I think he understands, and he's got good, innovative offensive offensive instincts. Uh, I don't think Garrett has that. I don't think Garrett's a good leader. I don't think the club. I don't think the team particularly likes Garrett right now. I think there's obvious divisions going on. You look at the Cowboys' comments from Terrence Williams compared to like, you know, what you heard from you know. You know, Des Bryant's pointing out Sean Lee was behind the getting cut, and Terrence Williams is kind of, you know, that he was Des was my boy, and 
you know, there, there was there's all kinds of weird chemistry going on in the locker room in uh, in Dallas, and I think that trickles down from a head coach who doesn't really have control of his team and uh, is not a great leader. Uh, on top of not being a good scheme schemer and uh, a good offensive play caller, so what is he good for? Uh, I would get I would have gotten rid of Garrett uh, last season and started with a fresh crack here if I were uh, running things in Dallas personally. Uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, and uh, Bill O'Brien. Um, I he has one glaring awful weakness, which is his ability to evaluate the quarterback position. Uh, it's a uh, it's an extreme black. Brock Osweiler was was put on his lap. Us. Well, no, because the theory goes that he never met Brock Osweiler until he signed his contract. Oh, really? You haven't heard okay. that? No, no, no. That's a well known thing that. Um, Okay. What's uh? I didn't know that. Yeah, Bill O'Brien never met with nor spoke to Brock Osweiler until um he was in the building to sign his contract. That was all management. Interesting. Okay. So in that same vein, though, uh, he has a black check mark for me for last preseason going through an entire training camp and um, deciding that Tom Savage was the answer at quarterback when you have Deshaun Watson on your roster. Um, that was an embarrassment. Uh, Tom Savage was. A Utter joke in week one against the Jags. I don't know if you remember that game. Yep. Uh, at home, home opener, Tom Savage could do nothing. The next game, Deshaun Watson pulled off uh, a nice win against the Bengals and then went on to just light the league on fire until he tore his ACL. So that that's that's not good quarterback evaluation. And that's you know you you got to be able to evaluate your own players. Uh, he's got he seems to have a blind spot for kind of picking out the turds on the roster and getting, you know, moving them off, moving them out of key positions. And that worries me a little bit about the offensive line. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a buyer, I guess, long-term in, in Watson. And I hope he stays healthy this year, given that they have such a, such a difficult line situation. Absolutely. We'll skip this one because we just touched on penalties. Um, it's just teams with more offensive penalties generally lose more games, but there's no correlation between defensive penalties and losses. And that's what goes to what you were saying that, you know, f- uh, false starts that there's data out there that that's the most incriminating um, pass interferences, all that type of stuff. So we touched on that one. So let's move on to this one and, and touch on some wide receivers. Wide receivers must be judged on both complete and incomplete passes. Here's an example from last season. Tyrell Williams of the Chargers had 728 receiving yards while Josh Doxson of Washington had just 502. Even though Doxon was targeted more often than Williams, both receivers played with good quarterbacks and each ran his average route roughly 14 yards downfield. But there's a big difference between them as Williams caught 62% of intended passes while Doxon caught only 45%. Some work has been done on splitting responsibility for incomplete passes between quarterbacks and receivers, but not enough time that we incorporate wide receivers into that statistic. Uh, two years ago, Jared Goff was throwing balls at receivers' feet almost exclusively, so I have a little bit of a, <laughs> a beef with this in that it's not uniform. Um, I think that there, yeah. you know, there's a certain, yes, a drop pass or, or these type of things when balls are being sailed over their head. I don't think that it can, I don't think it's anywhere close to a 50-50 split, um, but I think that there is a narrative out there. I mean, Jordan Matthews and his drops were, you know, basically got him kicked out of Philadelphia as the first-round pick. Um, you know, agree, disagree that it's more on a quarterback, more on a wide receiver. I mean, Eli Manning is still going to be throwing to, to Beckham Jr. this year and, and everything that goes into that. And I guess a good jumping off point for this one would also be the Vikings. Um, I am so yeah, high on Kirk yeah. Cousins. I have already placed a few bets, um, you know, buying his stock and passing yards and MVP, um, as well as I think Adam Thielen is a top seven wide receiver in this league. Um, so I, and again, that that's before Diggs and, and Rudolph in the red zone. Um, so let's touch on that as far as kind of just, 
buying and selling whose fault in a complete passes and, and kind of who would benefit um, from, you know, new quarterbacks and stuff like that around the league. Okay. So you brought the Vikings great jumping off point for them. Thielen and Diggs were just out of this world. Good last year and elevated Keenum uh, in my mind, in my book. Uh, and that, and that, that can happen in the same way that uh, Hopkins elevated Watson. Right. I mean, like, yeah, Watson was great. Like, yes, agreed. But you know, Hopkins was part of the reason why his statistics were so eye-popping. And, you know, particularly good wide receivers can absolutely 100% elevate a quarterback and vice versa. Amazing wide receivers can never get, uh, you know, can never get, you know, never load up the stat sheet because they're consistently being over or underthrown. Those are 100% true. And kind of my main takeaway, at least from this point, was just that, like, if you're making your living, like, commentating on the National Football League and you're doing, and you're, you're forming any opinions based on looking at box scores, stop, you know, like you you can't just look at box scores, look at completions, look at, uh, yardage, things like that, and have any kind of assessment of, you know, how good or bad certain players are because so much of it is situational and so much of it is, you know, is, is other components on a team making certain plays or certain teams good and bad. Uh, and so, you know, the Vikings were maybe a classic example of that last year. They bring in case Keenum, as a replacement for uh, Sam Bradford, who got hurt week one, Diggs and Thielen elevated the guy to, you know, the, 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 uh, the next level I thought. And I am very excited to see what cousins does with those guys because they caught balls that shouldn't have been caught period. And uh, they got open in situations where things were looking desperate and Keenum desperate, you know, he desperately needed to get rid of the ball and lo and behold, Thielen pops open ac- coming across the middle. You know, like when things were breaking down, he got bailed out time and again by those guys. Uh, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, what they do with the guy like uh, Kirk Cousins installed. I'm excited. Let's talk about the flip side of that and Keenum going over to Denver uh, with the trio that is emerging with Demarius Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, and now Cortland Sutton. Because to me, Sutton is, is the dark yeah. horse for um, Offensive Rookie of the Year. So let's take of, you know, what the Vikings lost and apply it to what Denver gained in Case Keenum. Yeah, so... The Broncos are fascinating. Uh, they're going to be a fascinating team uh, to handicap all season long, I think. Um, they have certainty at the quarterback position. I watched a lot of the coverage of their camp uh, yesterday, in fact, and the every veteran on that team kind of had the same kind of positive uh, beat uh, and the, the optimistic kind of tone, and it was all born out of we have certainty at the cornerback position for the first time since Peyton Manning left. Uh, and they are kind of all up, up on that. Right. And the defense carried so much of the load last year that they cracked, uh, or really the last two years, they carried so much of the load that like halfway through the season last year, they cracked. Um, and everybody kind of across the board is, is in a much more positive headspace, which is exciting for them. And I would say, you know, Demarius Thomas still has the goods. Emmanuel Sanders, uh, was just unhealthy for huge swaths of the season last year. And looks like he's getting back to full speed. Uh, you got a guy like Sutton to the mix and I'm very interested to see what they do scheme wise adjusting. Uh, they're bringing in, they brought in, they fired McCoy last year in season, who was the play caller, right? Vance Joseph is, you know, there's a head coach, but he's kind of at the, at the mercy of all, a lot of decisions that John Elway is making as the head of personnel. Right. And so that's kind of a little bit of an uncomfortable relationship there. Um, but, uh, but they fired McCoy. They put in this guy, Bill Musgrave. He's kind of an old fashioned, 
West Coast offense guy, but his offense is is kept up with the times. I don't think it's like, you know, it's I don't think it's uh, ineffective by any stretch of the imagination. So it's going to be fascinating to see what they do if they put uh, Sanders in the slot more and use uh, Sutton as the true wide receiver too. Uh, then I think you're talking about a pretty dynamic offense. Uh, and so I'll be looking to see if that's what some of the yeah you know, preseason game two and three is going to give you a huge indication of how mature the uh, uh, the Broncos offense is. And it's going to test the thing we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast. They don't have a running game. They have, they have a ragtag uh, committee of uh, kind of, you know, different pieces to do who fill different roles uh, running the football for them. A couple of rookies who are expected to contribute and Royce Freeman and a kid out of Arkansas, they got in the seventh round uh, and their offensive line is not particularly strong, but if they can pass protect, uh, I think you're talking about a much better offense in Denver than people expect. Completely agree. And again, you know how high I, <clears throat> I am on Sutton. And I've been a Case Keenum guy since he was back at Houston covering everything and breaking every NCAA record, not owned by uh, Colt Brennan. So to me, Case Keenum is, is such a huge upgrade for that team, as well Sutton, as giving him... By, uh, by the way, Sutton is a freaking monster. He's the love child of Des Bryant and Justin enormous. Blackman. He is enormous. Let's, well, the let's, handful of clips I saw, I was like, God, this guy is, you know, I got, I bet he, him he at, looks, I bet him at 45 to win to win offensive rookie of the year. And to me, he, he is a bigger. freak. He is the love child of Des Bryant and Justin Blackman, but let, let's, this will be our jumping off point. Cause the next one is about red zone. But before we get there, the inside Vegas podcast on the sports gaming podcast network is brought to you by mybookie.ag. Mybookie.ag is the official online sports book of the inside Vegas podcast on the sports gaming podcast network with football season here. Enter promo code SGP 100 for a 100% up from 50% deposit bonus today. MyBookie.ag. Play, win, and get paid. We are also brought to you by Oddshark. Get free picks from their supercomputer, as well as expert writing staff, as well as data-driven editorial content you will not find anywhere else. Finally, we are brought to you by BetQL. BetQL is the only mobile app that gives you the best chance to beat Vegas, and now NFL lines are up, available on the app. Go to BetQL.co to download the only app you need to make smarter bets today. All right, man, let's, nice. let's get on the Sutton train again even more because, again, oh, yeah. Yeah. red zone, right? This is where he could absolutely <laughs> excel, and there's another 6'8 target out there in uh, Des Bryant if he could find a home that maybe could get into the red zone as well. So let's touch on how important the red zone is. Uh, the red zone is the most important place on the field to play well, but performance in the red zone from year to year is much less consistent than overall performances. Although play in the red zone has a disproportionately high importance on the outcome of games relative to play the rest of the field, NFL teams do not exhibit a level of performance in the red zone that is consistently better or worse than their previous or performance year after year. The simplest explanation why is a smaller sample size and the inherent variance of football while contributing factors like injuries and changes in personnel. So obviously big guys are, are the focal point, right? Julio Jones going up and getting a, a jump ball. New guys like Corton Sutton, who is again, taller than Des Bryant and Justin Blackman, but with more skills. I mean, you, you just don't know who's going to be that, you know, almost red zone exclusive. You know, you see Kyle Rudolph every year have, t or, um, Cincinnati is, is the biggest one, right? With, uh, Kyle, with, oh, you uh, got it. Tyler Croft, um, and, um, uh, uh Eifert. Eifert, yep. Eifert's back this year. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He's, he's on, they're on the list. Yep. So let's talk about, I guess those teams, um, you know, uh, Rudolph, you know, tight ends Gronkowski, although he does a lot more stuff, uh, in between the twenties. Um, anything that's kind of red zone specific out there when uh, football outsiders talks about this one? Yeah. So what the, my, my mind went a couple of places right away when I read this, uh, 
the first was Cincinnati, like you mentioned. I would expect them to be a lot better in the red zone this year, uh, largely getting Eifert back, um, having contributions potentially from Ross if he you know, is like, you know, he's been the darling of camp, uh, at least on the Bengals side of things. So if he's if he's legit uh, and Eifert's back, then they're going to be much more effective in the red zone. They got a play caller, Bill Lazor, who took over in the middle of the season last year, and he seems to have a pretty, I like his stuff. I like the cut of his jib. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about, uh, Cincinnati, you know, who else should improve? Uh, and again, this is all kind of based on year over year. It's very difficult to, uh, you know, sustain greatness and Atlanta? You tend to bounce back if you suck, uh, Atlanta. Absolutely. They were so bad. They were like impossibly bad in the red zone last year. And it was like, they, it was like Sarkeesian choked every time it got, you know, things got, you know, things got, t- the going got tough. That guy choked it up. And uh, the Atlanta Falcons chapter was fascinating, written by a guy who I really like on Twitter, uh, Charles McDonald, who's a huge Falcons fan. And he he recounted with like perfect, uh, you know, sad, you know, sad, sadness, the final four drives of the Falcons season when they were a fourth and goal, uh, first and goal uh, to punch their ticket to the uh, you know, NFC championship game in Philadelphia. And the decision making that Sarkeesian had and the four plays he called were inexcusable. Um, they bring Sark back. He gets a full year of preparing with these guys. Um, based on faith and nothing else, I think you would have to expect them to be better in the red zone this year. Uh, it takes sometimes it takes guys, you know, it takes them a year plus to really get the hang of play calling, and it takes a full season of, of preparing to uh, to figure out your you know your weapons and strengths and things like that. And so I'm I you know. They can't be worse. <laughs> Atlanta can't be worse in the red zone this year. And, you know, I, I, I like to try to blame a lot of what happened last year on Super Bowl hangover type of kind of mentality. They just had a loser's mentality all year. Um, so yeah. hopefully they're better this year. And I, I like the Falcons as a, as a sleeper in the, uh, not really a sleeper, but a, but a true contender in the NFC uh, to go along with the Saints. Those two really are going to have some spectacular games. And uh, do you know they're playing the primetime game on Thanksgiving? Nope. It's going to be I super not, fun. I didn't even look I at it. I can't wait for that one. So don't eat too much turkey and drink too much wine <laughs> on Thanksgiving because you're going to want to watch the night game this year. Yeah. Um, the uh, But then there's one other team, and I know this is right in your sweet spot, so I'll, I'll move out of the way here. Uh, Cleveland Browns? Who was my, no, no, no. Uh, my, the worst team in the red zone last year, the team who frustrated the ever-loving bejesus out of me week in, week out uh, because of some of the play calls they had when they were inside the 20. Who? was the Tennessee Titans <laughs> and the Tennessee Titans. They, they Chuck Malarkey, Malarkey, Malarkey. They did something that most teams don't have the balls to do. They fired a coach who won a playoff game. Uh, and I think they're going to be better for it. So I'm, I'm more interested in seeing, uh, I'm more interested in a Titans, uh, type of future this year than I was last year. If they had brought Malarkey back for sure. Um, what are, you, what are, you, are you still ice cold on the Titans, even though Malarkey's been given his pink slip? So here's the deal. Anyone that knows me knows that I, I put, a th- you know, I, I weigh current form a lot, uh, maybe more than most. And I look at it because football is a lot different. It's, it's a short sample size every year, like you say, like you touched on in the beginning. Mike Malarkey was the, only, was the worst coach in the NFL covering the spread in the last four years. If you blind bet them the way I did, you made a lot of money or, you know, blind bet against them. Blind fade, yeah, yep. right. Number yeah. one was Cleveland. And number two were the Titans. However, if you just weighed Mike Malarkey, far and away, Tennessee was the worst team. And so to me, I am, 
Am I sold on Mariota? No. Do I love what they're doing and getting rid of him? The fact that they, you know, one side of me is very upset that they fired him because again, go to the well until it stops. money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they have all the talent in the world now. Derek Henry is a workhorse. They have Dion Lewis, who I think is going to do so much for them. Corey Davis, after after being an injury, having an injury riddled year, their play calling was even, you know, there, there's some data out there that shows that Marcus Mariota was a top five quarterback in some areas and a bottom five in the other. And I think he just needed a little bit of stabilization from his coaching staff. And Mike Malarkey, make no mistake about it, he may be a decent coordinator. He got the job for a reason. He was completely outcoached every single week. And again, I know we won a playoff game. I get it. I get it. To me, I this is the the year... I'm not going to be blindly fading the Tennessee Titans this year. Let me, let me put it that way. So in theory, yes. Am I ready to get in bed and bet them? No, but I am okay. not. I am. Okay. I'm not. Um, I need to see it first just because I think there's a lot of variance on a new coaching staff, especially early. And Mariota is always so prone to injury. Um, that being said, I am not betting against them every week blindly like I have the last three years. Um, so we're, we're taking steps in the right direction. I'm just not okay. there yet okay. until I see it for a little bit. All right. Well, if they improve in the red zone in the first couple of weeks of the season, then I'm actually all in that they are a contender yep. in the AFC. Um, and, you know, they have they have a standout offensive line anchored by a tackle, Taylor Luan. Like you mentioned, they have perfect complementary running backs in Henry and Lewis. Uh, Mariota, I, I still don't love his delivery. Uh, it gives me the willies. Yep. And when he's nervous, he throws some ugly picks like we saw against the Steelers last year. Um, but you know, it's a, this is a team that should have no problem punching it in when they get inside the 20 and yet they routinely struggled last year and, uh, they, they were built on the thought process that they could do that. And when they couldn't do that, those are the results that followed. The only reason that they won the playoff game, they won is Mariota threw that touchdown pass to himself, yep. which wasn't even the play call <laughs> that should have been broken up and should have squashed their comeback. Uh, so it's, it's all, it's also crazy. And hopefully, hopefully moving on from malarkey is the right thing to do. And we get a little bit more consistent offensive performance out of this team this year. Cause I, I'd like to see the Titans be good. I like Mariota, you know, he's, he's a good guy to cheer for. Absolutely. I like the guy that I like the guy that dresses like a pineapple in the end zone. Who's uh, cheering on the <laughs> pineapple guy and, and makes no sense. Oh, I guess, I guess cause Mariota is from Hawaii. The guy dresses like a pineapple yep, uh, in the end zone. But, uh, but yeah, that that the red zone. If they can improve in that one aspect of their game, then they're going to be a lot more, uh, a lot more interesting to back against the spread this year. Yep. And again, Corey Davis coming back is a huge red zone weapon, and Derrick Henry between the tackles. In theory, they should not have a lot. They shouldn't. Uh, they should be a lot better in the red zone. Completely agree. So let's touch on that. Field position is fluid. Pretty straight up here, as discussed in the st- statistical toolbox. Every yard line on the field has a value based on how likely a team is to score from that location on the field as opposed to from a yard further back. All right. Basically, all this saying is that field position outside of opening kickoffs, which is the absolute huge one. Um, is somewhat random, um, as uh, is basically all this says. In recent years, a few players have had huge seasons above these general age limits. Oh, sorry, that was for the other one. So yeah, basically this one just says that field position is random. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, and I mean, it's uh, it's this goes into your point of do you ignore special teams altogether or are there a couple of teams where you have to make an exception for it? I would say it's B. There's a couple teams you have to make an exception for. Um, I'm excited to see what Cordell Patterson looks like for the Pats, he could be a guy that kind of swings field position. Uh, you know what's worth pointing out? Um, the Raiders uh, used to have a guy that could punt the hell out of the football. Marquette and, King. Uh, John Gruden decided he was uh, he didn't like the uh, uh, 
uh, he didn't like the um, the attitude in the Which locker room. Which is such or, or bullshit. Something. Let me say this too, so because weird. no matter what, ever, whenever he called a Monday night game with the Raiders, all he did is praise Marquette King. Yeah, it was so weird. It was it, he, he got rid of right. no, he, he got rid of the whole special teams room. He fired the special teams coach. He fired their kicker and their punter and all long snappers. He now has a undrafted free agent kicker out of, I believe, Florida and Mike Nugent competing for their kicking job. And they got rid of the best punter in football and Marquette King. So if there's one team that will struggle unbelievably for no reason on special teams, it'll be the Raiders. Yeah. And uh, the Raiders losses the uh, Broncos game. I honestly think that the Broncos who I already had awesome, awesome home field advantage. Imagine him kicking to- at mile high now. Yeah. They had awesome home field advantage before. You got to give them an upgrade, literally, in their home field advantage because Marquette King is going to be able to be punting the ball 80 yards. Yep. Like he's, I, I saw clips of him doing coffin corner uh, from the 20 yard line. Uh, you know, th- th- there's no, uh, there's no underselling how kind of sneaky, impactful uh, the punting game might be for the Broncos, especially at Mile High. So uh, just keep that in mind when you're accounting for home field advantage this year. Absolutely. Last two running backs usually decline the, at the age of 28 tight ends, 29 wide receivers after 30 and quarterbacks after 32, unless you're Tom Brady. This research was originally done by Doug Drenan, editor of pro football reference in 2000. In recent years, a few players have had huge seasons above these general limits at, as the peak as for non-skill players research. We did in 2007 for ESPN, the magazine suggests that defensive end and defensive backs generally begin to decline after age 29 linebackers and offensive linemen after 30 and defensive tackles after 31. Um, again, we're not going to go into, you know, who's the, the oldest team, this and that. Um, is there anyone here that's kind of on this line, you know, touching the 30 that you want to just kind of point out real quick? If not, then yeah. it's not a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Someone important. Go. Uh, actually, I, I want to, first I want to mention that, uh, you, you said it for sure. Tom Brady is the exception to this rule. Uh, and to a degree, Drew Brees kind of was, but then we saw Drew Brees really kind of break down at the end of the season, two seasons ago. Uh, and it and Sean Payton completely revised the way that they approach offense in New Orleans to kind of account for that, you know, making his game much more balanced passing and running and having him do much more short passing. Um, and I think that that was a great, you know, a great adjustment. Uh, and, you know, I would continue to expect suspect Drew Brees puts up impressive numbers because of that. Um, but, you know, who's getting up there in age for quarterbacks who I'm kind of curious to see if there's an age regression on? Aaron um, Rodgers. Yeah. Aaron Rodgers is 34 and he does not have the benefit of a Sean Payton or a Josh McDaniels, uh, crafting his offense. He's got Mike McCarthy and, and lost Rogers, his wide receiver one. And he lost Jordy Nelson. You're reading my mind. They are, they turned over Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, maybe without, out without an injury. I think that the hype train on Rodgers being the best quarterback in the NFL heading into this season and, uh, the, the, the rightful uh, favorite for MVP is a little overblown. Um, And my expectations for him are tempered. I would like to see him uh, kind of prove me wrong, I suppose. Um, And I'm not loving the Packers really. Uh, Their, their roster is devoid of talent in some key areas. Uh, They've sustained some already troublesome injuries. Like I mentioned with Randall Cobb and back to he's gotten banged up already. Um, Granted, all this could be, you know, fine by the time week one rolls around. But, um, yeah, man, Rodgers is 34. Yep, he came a... into the league late, and he uh, didn't start his first couple of years because he was behind Brett Favre. Uh, he might end up 
uh, you know, we might we might be seeing some signs of regression from him at some point. Uh, and I'm going to have my eyes very carefully peeled to see if it's this year. There's a couple else, other ones I want to touch on. Obviously, Eli Manning at 35, Ben Roethlisberger at 34, Philip Rivers is very interesting at 34. Um, Great one, Alex Smith, 32, Aaron Rodgers. Yep, you touched on, and Joe Flacco, Matt Ryan, 31. Just as some other ones. Yeah, Matt Ryan. This is it for him, probably. I think of as far as his because you know, he was kind of borderline elite as it is, uh, and he benefited so much from the Shanahan scheme in his MVP year. Um, I like him. I think he's great. I think you'll have a great season. Uh, but, uh, he's on my, he's on my list to keep an eye on in 2019. But, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, do you think it's, it's, uh, it's, do you think, I guess, as you look at the market, do you think Aaron Rodgers should be the proverbial favorite for MVP? No, I really don't. I mean, uh, the talent, I mean, here's the thing. He's the rich man's version of Andrew Luck. And what I mean by that is you saw how bad the Colts are without Andrew Luck. Those eight and eight teams would have been four and 12 teams had Andrew Luck not been there. And obviously that's the same situation (laughs) with the Packers. Nobody really realizes how much Aaron Rodgers masks that team until he's not there. Um, They are not a good football team. If Aaron Rodgers is not on the field, the same can obviously be said with the Indianapolis Colts. Now, the Colts aren't a great football team with Andrew Luck on the field, but they're eight and eight, nine and seven, um, you know, seven and nine floor. Um, so to me, those two guys kind of go hand in hand. But you know, it, somewhat, it's the LeBron James effect. It's the Tom Brady effect. They could win the MVP every single season, and it would be rightfully deserved. But there's nobody that's more. Again, maybe outside of Andrew Luck, and you can say Tom Brady, but again, when we go back to this, they went three and one without Brady and eleven and five and a whole year without him. <laughs> you know, so who's more quote unquote valuable? I think Ben Roethlisberger is in that discussion. Um, but to me, it's Andrew Luck and it's Aaron Rodgers. So yes, is he the most valuable player to a team, to his team? Yes, but that doesn't translate to the MVP for the year from a market perspective. Winning the award, right? right. Yes, yeah. Completely agreed. Yeah. All yeah. right. They're gonna be yep. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. No, well, I just want to wrap this one up with the last one. Let's do championship teams are generally defined by their ability to dominate inferior opponents, not their ability to win close games. Football games are often decided by just one or two plays, a missed field goal, a bouncing fumble, the subjective spot of an official fourth and one, one missed assignment on a quarterback, as you saw with Minnesota and New Orleans, or one slightly uh, askew pass that bounces off a receiver's hands and into those of a defensive back. In a blowout, however, one lucky bounce isn't going to change things. Championship teams in both professional and college football typically beat their good opponents convincingly and destroy the cupcakes on the schedule. Uh, this is from me. You know, nothing will speak to us more than for this from a market perspective on our teams. You know, it, when a team has an easy schedule and they're they're doing well, they're winning. Are they covering? Are they not? That doesn't really matter. They're supposed to beat these teams, right? But the way to gauge yeah. this not even from a gambling perspective, but from, you know, if you want to get a gauge on how good a team really is, look at spreads. Because what that says is this team is so many points better than this. That's what a handicap is. The team is starting a game, you know, six points down. The game is starting six, nothing. You know, if you want to see if a team is is good when they're facing these bad teams, more than just the eye test, look at the spread. Even if you're not a gambler, if you just want to get into kind of um, you know, perspective, if you're just playing futures and stuff like that, that's what the market is designed to do is tell you if a team is meeting expectations or not. Um, so again, that's my take on it. You kind of agree or disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, uh, good teams win, great teams cover. And, uh, it's, uh, I, it speaks to a lot of different things, uh, like how deep is a team? 
Um, you know, if, if your second unit guys are getting time on the field and are making impactful contributions, like some of the great Patriots teams of the past, that was, you know, that was a huge reason why is they just had, you know, wave after wave of contributors that were stepping up and, you know, filling, you know, doing the jobs. And then when you sustain injuries, you can, you can persevere, you know? And so if you're, if you're the kind of person that's trying to look for a season long, um, value in the futures market or something like that, you know, you have to, you have to be, um, I think considering that aspect of things, because you never really know if the injury bug is going to bounce in your favor against your, against you. And, uh, we saw with the Eagles last year, they absolutely dominated their inferior opponents outside of their division. Um, and, um, it obviously, it obviously indicated what a, uh, what a, what a solid, you know, approach and, and, uh, and coaching staff and everything top to bottom on that team. And, uh, they go on and win the Super Bowl with their backup quarterback for crying out loud. Completely agree, man. Again, that's what the market was designed to do. If a team is playing five straight games of sub uh, 500 teams and you want to get a feel for how good they are, look at the point spreads. If they're covering, they're more than likely for real. I think that's one of the most important um, things to do to get a gauge of a team. You know, a a team that is supposed to be so much better may not, you know, necessarily uh, just because they came out of that stretch 4-0, they covered zero of them, which again, in today's uh, day and age with the spread and all that is is very rare. Um, the market is is kind of undervaluing these teams that are blowing teams out. I really believe that. I don't think the spreads have gotten a little bit low. I mean, you look at week one. There's like ten of them that are under two and a half, under three. Um, I, I just don't. Or you know, and certainly all of them, I believe, are are under a touch or under uh, ten points. Um, so I think that the disparity and parity in the league that is striving for parity isn't. Um, you know, the market's not catching up to that. And I think that the great teams are so much better than the bad teams. It's just the market hasn't caught up to it for going on three years. And that's the reason for the 85% of spreads not mattering right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, some, some teams right now, we, uh, the NFL is not full of, you know, every, every, uh, every front office and, you know, and, and, uh, uh, penthouse is not full of like the sharpest, smartest, uh, you know, students of the game who are, you know, at the cutting edge of, uh, of coming up with the, the best way to, you know, nail down efficiencies. Yep. There is loads of fat at the top of these organizations, nepotism. Uh, it's, it's, it's who, you know, not what, you know, in tons of these organizations and some teams get it. Some teams don't. And, uh, almost certainly if you can find, you know, if you can find the team or the handful of teams outside of the ones we know are going to be great, uh, who, you know, who absolutely get it this year, uh, you can buy into them early and, uh, have a, have an outstanding 2018. Absolutely. We kind of did this a little bit differently than I thought that we would. And I absolutely love the format of this, but is there anything from a team, um, perspective, kind of anything on their pages? Again, I know these are all six, you know, six, uh, six pages deep and everything like that, but is there anything that kind of stuck out to you? I know you touched on them as we went throughout with, um, the saints, um, naggy, all that type of stuff, but anything else you kind yeah. of want to point out that you had notes on feel free. We, we hit all my favorite. We hit all my favorites. Just kind of going through the, awesome. just kind of going through the, the facts of, uh, uh, the, you know, kind of the architecture of, of what football outsiders has put together that worked out perfectly. Uh, I'll only say one thing. If not, if you, if nothing else, if you are like, man, these team previews are too dense. Um, I didn't really find the charts and tables 
very useful. Uh, I kind of just skipped those as I was reading the team previews, but I thought that the the written uh, narratives about the teams that I read were outstanding and give the huge credit to the guys who spent the time writing stuff. Um, but if you read only one, read the Broncos one. It is hysterical. Uh, Mike Tanier just absolutely lights John Elway on fire for some of the <laughs> for some of the just brutal drafts uh, that he's had and some of the decision-making that he's done, he points out some absolute uh, truths about uh, the mistakes they've made and, and the inability of an organization altogether. It's like, like, what do you do if the guy at the top is also, you know, in the ring of honor and is a local hero, like, you know, who can step in and say, Hey man, we're making bad decisions here. We got to do this and see X instead of Y. Uh, and, um, and it's fascinating because that does play a huge, uh, you know, a huge role in you know the, the long term outlook for the for the Broncos. Uh, even though it looks like Elway swung and hit some serious uh, pay dirt in the draft in 2018. Yeah, really, really love this uh, this this Broncos draft class. They look totally legit. So completely, it's completely. fascinating. If nothing else, read the Broncos. <laughs> Agree. Give me your rapid fire MVP prediction, 2018 NFL season. Oh my God! Oh man! Are you on the spot? For that. Rapid fire. Yep. Uh, let me start with Let me start with defensive player of the year. Okay. Defensive player of the year is going to be Joey Bosa. Yeah. Uh, the chart. The Chargers defense is going to be flat out awesome. Uh, even losing Verrett, they still have outstanding pieces in the secondary, which means that they the pass rush can be even more aggressive. Joey Bosa not only is in his third season and getting better. Uh, but, uh, he's got the knack, uh, uh, you know, he, he gets an amazing jump, uh, and he's going to put up just eye popping, uh, sacks this year. So I love him for defensive player of the year. Uh, and then for MVP, man, oh man, this is so hard. <laughs> uh, I think they're going to give, I think they're going to give it to, uh, to Drew Brees. Ooh, I, I think like Drew Brees is, it's basically going to be a career career achievement award. Does he also win most passing yards? I think it's going to be close. He's got so many, he's got so many weapons on offense. Camara is, you know, is, is obviously, you know, is, is a huge, huge component to their game. Um, And I think the, as I look across a very, very stacked NFC, uh, the saints really stand out as a team to me that can win 14 games. Um, And if the saints win 14 games and Drew Brees has a Drew Brees season, He's going to be the he's going to pass the threshold for most passing yards of all time this year. He's going to break Peyton Manning's record. Um, and so I'm thinking as like the stupid voters, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to remember like a whole chunk of the middle of the season where it's just Drew Brees mania. Like he's going to break Peyton Manning's record. Right. And you combine that with if they can get 14 wins, if they can get lock up uh, home field advantage in the playoffs. People are thinking, oh, they're going to win every game at home because the Saints are just ridiculous in the dome. Um, give him a career career achievement award. I don't think Drew Brees has ever won the MVP, has he? No, he had the most passing yards for be five, four or five years straight. Yeah, um, so there you go. I love that take. Uh, my 2018 MVP <laughs> would be Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins, okay. okay. So I think he also whoever, wins it. So we're, both, we're thinking the same sort of thing. Whoever, yep. whoever locks up like the one seed in the NFC probably gets it. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Another question: yeah. Does Matthew Stafford under Matt Patricia break his streak of five and sixty-seven or six and sixty-seven against teams over five hundred? <laughs> uh, I'll say yes, and I will say that only because 
the offensive line in Detroit looks pretty darn good. Um, and he's got some pretty amazing weapons. I love Marvin Jones. The Golden Tate still got the goods. Uh, they have, uh, they have, they have a sneaky good team. People are sleeping on the Lions. Nobody's talking about them. Yep. Lastly, how many yeah. how many games did the Browns win this year? Uh, three, three and thirteen. I like it. That still yeah. goes under the. Tw- you think five and a half is high the way that I do? Way too high. Yeah. Way too high. Hugh Jackson's awful. He is awful. Last question, hey. then. I like that yeah. you touched Sorry, on Hugh ahead. Jackson. Greg, Greg, Greg Williams is awful. The fact that these guys retain their jobs is an utter disgrace and teach, tells you more about the Browns than any other decision they made in the offseason. Who gets fired first? Marvin Lewis, Hugh Jackson, or Dirk Cutter? And I'll even throw uh, Ron Rivera. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, so we've seen a weird trend where less and less, fewer, fewer and fewer guys have gotten fired in season. It's almost like a rarity now. Um, and so it, it's made it, it's taken the fun out of first coach first coach first coach fired handicap i think um i like ron rivera to get fired i think the uh the decision to bring in norv turner as the offensive coordinator in uh in carolina was as uh, it has disaster written all over it from jump street uh you combine norv turner and a in a terrible offensive line you're going to have cam newton in seven step drop backs and running for his life it's it's going to be awful uh i Lowest, lowest can be on Carolina overall for that reason. Uh, and Ron Rivera does seem to be the guy that would wear it. Uh, new owner, you know, he's going to want to get his own guys in there. Uh, I think he gets fired. And, you know, Cutter deserves to be fired. Hugh Jackson deserves to be fired. But those franchises don't seem to be very well, uh, well run, well managed. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't see them pulling a the trigger in season. You know, it's not like, it's not like you have a guy. I think you only see firings in season if you have a guy on your staff who you want to try out for the job before anyone else gets a shot at him. And I don't see that on the Browns coaching staff. They're not. They're not giving Greg Williams a shot. They're not giving Todd Haley a shot. Uh, I don't see that on the Tampa Bay staff. They're. They're the Tampa Bay staff is weak, top to bottom. Um, and uh, you know, for the 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 Panthers are going to be. Um, maybe the only maybe the only reactionary team. They, maybe they fire Rivera in season. We'll see. Let me go one other way with it. I'm going to tell you the, the thought process of how this happens in season. The longest tenured head coach in the league besides Bill Belichick is Marvin Lewis. The key to this yeah. season is Andrew Luck. Let me tell you how Andrew Luck is either going to give him his pink slip or not. If he doesn't beat the Colts week one, they have Baltimore, which is a loss. I think that Panthers is a loss, and I think Atlanta is a loss. If they start the season 0-4, I think he's gone in that fifth week again when he comes back October 7th against the Dolphins. If Marvin Lewis loses week one to the Colts, I'm putting him down for 0-4 to be fired after the first month of the season. That's interesting. I, I, uh, I see where you're coming from, and it's a solid, uh, it's a very solid uh, reason to fire someone. Uh, I'll throw the only bit of cold water I can throw on it is um, who's the guy that owns the Bengals? This guy's cheap as hell. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He's he's just a cheap. He's a cheap. Uh, he's a cheap guy, and he just gave uh, Marvin Lewis more money. Uh, so there's, it's antithetical to his DNA, I think, to uh, to let a guy walk away with uh, having just gotten more money from him. So I, I don't I don't know that uh, uh, that we'll see Marvin Lewis get fired in our lifetime. <laughs> 
I like it, buddy. Well, we did it. <laughs> and again, this... Gonna... Go ahead. Yeah. No, they're I agree. Pry... They're, they're going to have to pry the clipboard out of his cold, dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did it, man. This this one, again, is so in-depth. I know that the Warren Sharp one is maybe even... I don't want to say more in-depth, but up there. But this one, to me, if nothing else... If you don't even want to read the team previews, go through this. I know we touched on kind of the our takes and kind of equated this to teams and how it affects their 2018 outlook, but you can learn so much of this because it's from guys that are kind of dialed into that. It's beat writers. It, it's all that type of stuff and the, and the best um, takes. It is worthy of your purchase and of your time, even if you don't um, necessarily believe or even factor DVOA into anything. I think it's just a huge um, tool on your way to get ready for the 2018 handicapping season. And as well, they do have college stuff in there. Um, so it, it's football in general. Um, so I would absolutely recommend this. Do you feel the same? Yeah, I would. And, uh, if you are new to football outsiders, I would not put a ton of stock into their projections themselves. Uh, the win projections, the playoff percentages and things like that. Uh, it's just silly. There's so many moving parts. There's so much uncertainty due to injuries and stuff like that. And, and, uh, I am not a fan really of the way they did their 10,000 or 1 million simulations. I think there's kind of some fundamental flaws and way they did that to try to come up with reasonable numbers that were close to the Vegas expectations and things like that. Uh, so don't put a ton of stock into what they're predicting necessarily. Just use it kind of like they are like experts at looking at data from games and kind of taking the correct lessons from that, I think. And that's I think that's the most valuable thing you can have kind of in your own personal handicapping toolbox, knowing why a team covered or why a team's not covering or why they have a potential to cover in a given game. Uh, and kind of using the lessons from football outsiders to steer you in those directions. Everything's a tool. Use it as such. Never just get down on one thing and, and see one trend or one stat <laughs> and, and think that it's gospel the way that maybe uh, some other people would have you believe something like net yards per play is. Everything, when they all line up, that's when you can kind of um, you know increase your, your edge and stuff like that. Use everything as a tool and, and take the consensus. But, Whale, buddy, everything you're doing in this space, man, I want you to take the time and plug it. As always, you can find him on Twitter at whale underscore capper. Uh, the deep dive with Andy, anything else and everything. I know you have a new website in the works, so go ahead and tell everyone about that. Or not in the works, but oh, yeah, live. Yeah, deep. Yeah, deep dive uh, the uh, podcast. We get we start in we start in we start year two uh, on uh, congratulations uh, one year anniversary of the deep dive podcast. You're obviously a friend of the pod. We did a great uh, episode fifty with you about the MMA handicapping. That's still it's evergreen. You can go back and listen to that one anytime. Um, and um, yeah, so we enter season two of NFL handicapping. Doing starting our our season previews this week uh, and got some amazing guests that you would recognize from the Twitter sphere. Uh, Jay Crayer, the guy you had on to talk college football, he's joining us tomorrow to talk about the AFC West and the NFC South. Uh, and um, yeah, I can't wait for the football season. And uh, the, the podcast itself has a permanent home at deep, deepdivemedia.co. Uh, and we're putting up articles, videos, all kinds, anything you can imagine related to gambling content is up there. And uh if you like the type of stuff you see from me on Twitter, you'd like this type of stuff we have at the website. So check it out and uh, best of luck this season. CP, get that money. Yeah, you too, man. And again, I would echo this from the website of his that he created. One of the best things, if you're out there and you're looking for beat writers and you're looking for you know everything in one place and you don't know how to create a Twitter list and you don't want to spend the 10 hours that that's required to do, he does that for you. Daily recaps of what beat writers are saying for some of the most important storylines in the NFL. I think it's one of the most ingenious things. And again, man, I can't praise enough, uh, praise you enough for everything that you're doing in this space, buddy. So 
I know this went super long, and again, I'm, I'm so thankful um, and grateful for you for taking the time, buddy. So great, great luck on this upcoming 2018 season and all the continued success on the second year of the Deep Dive Podcast. Mm-hmm.